There will be no blaming of the computers this morning. Oh, no, no. This one is all on me. As much as I would like to, as was the case yesterday, blame the inanimate object. Because it was the computer's fault. It really was. This morning, I'm just a wee bit behind my times. My apologies for that. Six minutes after nine on this Wednesday, the 13th of December. You'd never know it by being outside, but that's okay. We'll take it. It was a lovely night for a walk with the dog. I just put on my running shoes and off we went. I'm okay with it. The the big difference between, and I can't believe it took me as long as it did to figure this out, but the biggest difference between walking a dog in the winter when there's snow on the ground and the other times is when there's snow on the ground, you can understand better why the dog stops and sniffs at so many different spots because it's much more obvious, you see. The yellow on the snow is the trigger for the nose, don't you know? Anyway, here we are, off for another day of conversation, and I do look forward to engaging and interacting with you on these conversations today because there's a lot going on, a lot going on right here in our own backyard and beyond. But of course, this being the morning after, the night before, oh, how much do I love this tradition? Let me count the ways. Here's another little edition of AM on AM in the AM. Willie Nylander sliding in over the line. He's through the defense. Right big side of shot scores. Matthews set up by Nylander with the extra attacker on. And the Maple Leafs have jumped to a one nothing lead. And Matthews has opened the scoring back-to-back nights on this road trip. Off the boards again for Nylander. Flip once more for Matthews. Looking for a second. Another shot. Reba scores! Austin Matthews once again. What a performance. A multi-goal game for the 66th time of his career. Uh Uh-huh. And speaking of 66, that also just so happens to be the number of goals that Austin Matthews is on pace to score this year. Should he stay on this pace and reach 60 goals or better? He will have done so for the second time in just his eight NHL seasons. He's also on pace to put up once again more than 100 points this season. I mean, no big deal, right? It's just Austin Matthews and the greatest hockey team on the planet. Winners of nine of their past 13, Austin Matthews with 21 goals now leads all NHL skaters in goals scored. And, you know... I was listening to another radio station yesterday morning that I may never listen to again because the fellow I was listening to had me all bummed out about last night's Leafs-Rangers game. He was telling me that the Leafs basically stood no chance because it's a back-to-back game and they're going to be tired and Austin Matthews wouldn't even score a goal and this, that, and the other thing. Not only did Austin Matthews score a goal, he scored two as you just heard with AM on AM in the AM. And he had two assists. It's a big four-point night for number 34. And the Leafs win. The Leafs win 7-3 to three over the New York Rangers. So take that guy on the other radio station that I may never listen to again. You come here for the reliable information and the exaggeration about the greatest hockey team on earth. But I know 
All of you, except those who are fans of the team that shall not be named, love, absolutely love listening to AM on the AM, in the AM, every morning after the night before. I wanted to share with you something I saw from Guelph Mayor Cam Guthrie on Twitter this morning. He actually shared it last night, but I think I was in bed by that point. Uh, But Mayor Guthrie wanted to point out that Guelph City Council approved 506 new housing units across the city in just 30 minutes at their meeting last night. Giddy up, let's go, says the mayor of Guelph. And to the mayor of Guelph, first of all, that is terrific news. Thanks for sharing. 506 new housing units across the city approved in 30 minutes. But the city of Waterloo would like to say, Mayor Guthrie, hold my beer. Because just 24 hours earlier, the city of Waterloo, while taking a little bit longer than 30 minutes, but nonetheless, it approved 4,000, 4,000, eight times the number of housing units that Guelph was able to approve last night. Waterloo approved 4,000 new units at its meeting on Monday, which is 25% of its provincial target. And of course, among those 4,000 units, some units at the University of Waterloo that will support the student population and, moreover, the largest development in the city's history, what they're going to be doing on the old Krauss carpet lands on Northfield in Waterloo. So put them all together. The largest development in the city's history, 4,000 units approved. Which, again, the 506 in Guelph, terrific. The 4,000 in Waterloo, fantastic. Approvals are one thing. Shovels in the ground are another. But now that they're approved, let's go. As Mayor Guthrie and Guelph says, giddy up, let's go. And we'll see where it goes from here. All I can tell you is, parents... Tell your kids to get a job in the trades because it looks like there is a lot of work (laughs) in that area in the not-too-distant future. In fact, they could probably find some of that work right now. So from the 4,500-plus housing units approved through Waterloo and Guelph in just the past 36 hours or so, I take you to our federal housing minister, Sean Fraser. You probably heard this during All News afternoons yesterday with Paul McPhee and Aaron Anderson. But I'll tell you what, it's uh, it's got my attention because we have talked about it, particularly right here in the region around our Build Now initiative, right? The Build Now initiative, which was launched back in the summer, promising 10,000, a very aggressive number of homes by 2030. And it was going to be done in cooperation with all manner of stakeholders from the building community, the trades, nonprofits, cities were being asked to step up and find some available lands, right? Because the lands would essentially be donated to make this work. And the plan was 10,000 homes that would be attainable, attainably priced in this community. And it was compared to the wartime builds that we had done in this country some almost 80 years ago now. Well, we're kind of going back to the past with this announcement from Federal Housing Minister Sean Fraser yesterday on what essentially amounts to a prefab catalog. The idea being, here's a home, the design of which has been approved, 
and we can save you a whole bunch of time and effort through the process. The goal having a, of having a streamlined catalog of pre-approved designs is to cut time and costs from the process of building. Moreover, we're going to have a focus on home designs that are cost-effective, labor-efficient, and energy-efficient. We want to create designs that can actually be built quickly and can built cheaply without compromising on quality or sustainability. It's also going to ensure that people who live in these homes have reduced power bills month to month and can continue to manage with the cost of living. It's really exciting to me because we're going to embrace new technologies that exist today in an effort to scale them up. We expect there will be significant space for modular home designs, for panelization, for mass timber, and potentially even 3D printing, depending on what the consultation tells us. To give you a sense of who this is going to help uh, beyond the residents who will live in the homes that are built more quickly, um, think about nonprofit developers who are seeking to uh, deal with the rising cost of building. And to be able to have access to a design off the shelf provided by the government is going to reduce the cost of hiring their own architect and it's going to allow them to speed up the process of approvals through CMHC's application process. Think about uh, larger scale developers uh, who will be dealing with reduced costs and efficiencies achieved with economies of scale when they're able to produce more of the same product over time. It's also going to incentivize those who are thinking of investing in home building factories to make that investment when there's a, a greater degree of certainty around the demand that's going to exist uh, for those who will be looking to build at scale. Uh, and finally, it's going to help new players uh, get into the sector. Uh, when you look at the cost of hiring that uh, uh, person who will provide the design for you and the time that it will take, uh, someone who is thinking of starting a development company is facing a lot of barriers to entry. Uh, by providing a catalog of pre-approved designs, we're going to reduce the cost and time to build, making it easier for individuals and small companies who are looking to get into the business of home building to actually take that next step. So taking that next step, making it easier, cutting about a year off of the process. I mean, it's it's all well and good. And and I submit to you this. The party, like, forget how everything is broken. Forget affordability for the moment. I, I believe that the next election, federal, whenever it should come, will be fought over who has the best housing plan. I, I really do. And And maybe this is the federal liberal party staking its claim. I don't know. The federal liberal party seems to be coming apart at the seams and not necessarily united behind its leader, especially following yesterday's news of a sustainable ceasefire. That's what Canada has joined the call for in Gaza. But that's a bit of a sidebar, and we'll talk more about that just after 10. This sounds to me very much like the federal government's, the federal liberals' plan for housing. And the question, of course, becomes this. Is it going to work? Does this sound like... I mean, on the surface, it's a whole lot to like. If you're going to speed up approvals, if you're going to have this catalog that you can just refer to, maybe we get some modular homes, whatever it ends up looking like, this certainly sounds like a way to accelerate home building. Devil always in the details... And there will be public consultations launched early in the new year. But that was the announcement from Housing Minister Sean Fraser yesterday. You think it's got legs? You think this is something that's going to work? Much like I said at the outset with all the housing approvals in Guelph and Waterloo, it's terrific. Now we've got to get them built. 
and we need the people to do that, and we got to get to work on that. Your thoughts always welcome on the program. It's the Mike Farwell Show, and this is City News 570. What a treat it is to look through to the guy on the other side of the glass, Devin Robertson, and see his face today. He's not burying his face in his hands because of gremlins in the machine. It just sounds better, doesn't it? Life is good. Life is good here this morning, and I hope it is with you too. 9.22, eight minutes away from your update at the City News Center, and then moving into a conversation about the future of the site of the former Preston Springs in Cambridge. We'll get to that, but as always, we have room to hear from you on the show. Let's go to the phones. Ali, good morning. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. How about you? Not bad. Just fine, lovely, sunny morning. Just a little nippy, but yeah, nice. Good. Glad to hear it. Um, regarding this home building, uh, you said, you know, as per uh, Mayor and Guelph, he said, uh, you know, giddy up and let's go. The problem with that is, like, if he's, if they're choosing some of the reputable uh, builders nowadays, even they're cutting corners. I'm a new home uh, owner just recently, about six, seven months ago, and uh, even the home on, home builders, they're just taking long enough for their housing to be built, and then the quality is just not there. They're behind their cherry on warranty and all that, but they got our money, and they just give us a runaround. The trades are not available and all that. So, so. I don't know how they're going to be able to solve it, but in order to solve this issue, I just have an idea that if, let's say, the lawyer in trust holds the some of the amount, let's say, hundred to two hundred thousand of the final amount, until the work is done and the homeowner is satisfied that I am good to go with my home, that money can be bill, uh, sent back to the builder. Otherwise, they're not going to do our jobs properly. You know, it's it's a really interesting point, Ali, and I and I wonder. If you consider what's being proposed federally with this kind of catalog of prefab homes, might that solve some of these issues? Uh, It all depends, again, who the builder is and uh, what kind of materials and quality they use. Uh, Some of the qualities, like even the windows itself that they use, like one of the cheapest quality they use, every winter there's condensations on it. And every time we get back to the builder on it saying, uh, you know, this is what's happening, they said, this is normal. Control your humidity in the house. Well, our humidity is set to 30, 35, and it's still the condensation is happening. Why is it that they're not uh, investing in, you know, the double-penetrated uh, window styles that other companies are, uh, uh, you know, doing it afterwards? So why is it not take the first step the right way and, uh, you know, then the homeowners be more satisfied with their product? Yeah. yeah, Lee, it's an excellent point, and I really appreciate your call and your perspective today. And the old man in me, uh, Ali sounds much younger, but he's a wise fella. And and the old man in me, look, how many times have we said it, right? They just don't make stuff the way they used to. And I think about that an awful lot, an awful lot when it comes to homes as well. And I think about whatever our future home looks like, because I I don't suspect that we will stay in the same home forever that we are in today. But when the time comes to find that next place, how much consideration goes into when and how it was built? I, I, I 
completely understand where Ali is coming from in this regard. I'll go next to Doug. Doug, good morning. Good morning, Mike. Hello, Douglas. <laughs> I, uh, I called in right away when you were doing your little AM on, on AM in the morning. Isn't it a great way to start your day? It's an awesome way to start the day. And I'm also hoping that maybe just now some people will get off Martin Jones' back. Everybody seems to keep pointing at the, at, the, at the guy's career. Okay, he's not the second coming of George Bezina, but everybody's saying he's not the answer. He's not going to help them out. He's not going to be able to fill in. Um, last spring, his last start, they mentioned, was April the 8th. If he won that game, they'd have forced the eventual Stanley Cup champions to a seventh game for Seattle. I think that means he's probably done pretty good. He, you know, as I said, and last night, he... Uh, uh, how did the guy put it? He bent, but he didn't break. He did what he had to do, and he he made stops on breakaways. He uh, he, he stopped some shots that were were through a force of legs that I don't know how he saw. But you know he he uh, he did the job for heaven's sake. Give the guy a, a, a chance once in a while. I I nearly fell over every time somebody mentioned his name. It was uh, all. All old stats that, that you know, <laughs> I guess, you know, it's what you want to be done for me lately. Well, now I've got something to go on. So, anyway, um, the dad trip, uh, I, I watched both games, and it was, well, you know I watched both, but the other one, it was, uh, it was a lot of fun to watch last night because uh, they, uh, they, they, they kind of stumbled their toe in the second period. They did a great job. And as far as the housing goes, um, they talked about uh, going back to those plans they had when the guys came back from the military. I grew up uh, around wartime housing, as they called it. They're still doing that once in a while. I went back to an old neighborhood in Mississauga, and there was a uh, subdivision. I would say probably about 40 or 50 homes. They were all exactly the same color. They all had orange garage doors. And, oh, my goodness, I would not want to come home in the middle of the night six feet to the window because you wouldn't know which house to go in. But I hope this works. I really hope this works because if if it's prefab, Hopefully, it, it's going to eliminate some mistakes, and that's uh, what what your uh, Ali was talking about. Um, people need a place to be, and and they need a good place, a good solid place. Prefab might be the way. It, it works for golf too. All right, Doug. Appreciate that call, and yeah, I think that there is merit to the idea. As I said, public consultations, as you probably know from the news yesterday, will begin uh, early in 2024. But maybe, just maybe, this is the way. And and I'll say again, I, I really do think, if, on top of all of the issues we've been talking about already, the next federal election will be fought over who has the best housing plan. That's my sense today. Could change. Don't know that it will. An update from the City News Centre, and then the future of Preston Springs in Cambridge. We'll talk about it next on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. Every day is a brand new adventure. Now, it's time to embark on this journey together. Trending this half hour on the Mike Farwell Show. On City News 570. The impact both during and after the build, traffic delays, well, that's an everyday occurrence that would become worse. Road design and limitation, especially with Fountain and Abraham Street, confusion on Abraham Street will be used, the impact, etc. I think we can all read. My first concern uh, for your consideration is the impact of increased traffic that it's going to have on first responders. The other thing about the traffic that I will go back to is school buses. Right now, I have two nieces and a nephew that live next door to me that I help get on the bus all the time. 
And I'm going to tell you that probably on an average of almost once a week, the buses are late due to the traffic right now. It sets the disturbing precedence for future development. If we allow this to happen here, what's to stop the next developer closer to Shant Hill from requesting the same thing? The Mike Farwell Show continues on City News 570 and Rogers TV Cable 20. Well, that's just a little glimpse inside Cambridge Council Chambers last evening. It was a packed house where the public had an opportunity to weigh in on the proposed development to sit on the Preston Springs, the former Preston Springs property at Fountain and King in the Preston area of Cambridge. They are talking about three towers with 753 residential units and about 420 square meters of commercial space on the ground floors. As you probably gleaned from that little clip, traffic concerns seem to be top of mind for many residents who are sharing their concerns with council. The councillor for the ward, that's three in Cambridge, is Corey Kimson, who joins us for a conversation this morning. Corey, good morning. Good morning, Mike. How are you? I'm doing all right, thank you. How are you? I'm my usual delightful self. (laughs) I'm glad to hear that, especially after a meeting like last night's. It ran more than four hours, and I think it shows, especially by the number of people who showed up and wished to speak, that there is a great deal of interest in the future of this iconic site in Preston. Indeed, and we actually, um, we didn't finish the meeting last night. Everyone was, you know, just, there was so much to share and everyone was just so exhausted from taking the information in. Um, the decision was made that we were going to pause the meeting and defer everything to next Tuesday's meeting. And that way we, you know, we're looking at everything with, you know, fresh minds and fresh eyes. What we heard last night certainly seemed to me to be overwhelmingly concerns about the impact that this development will have on traffic in the area. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. That's certainly one of the main concerns. And um, as the councillor for Ward 3, I'm not actually the councillor for where the development is located. That's Ward 1, and that's where we have our new councillor, Helen Shreary, um, in place. But the boundary is just sort of one block up and any traffic that sort of gets snarled at that intersection affects, you know, the entire community of Preston and in many cases beyond. Um, Just yesterday morning, for example, when the 401 was experiencing um, crashes on both the eastbound and westbound at 8.15 in the morning. Traffic on King Street was backed up to Westminster Drive, and that, that's significant. Yeah, I've been there, I've seen that, and there's no question the impact on the Preston area specifically when the 401 is impacted, when Fountain is impacted, take your pick. It's already, the point is, that's already a really busy area. As you come down Sean's Hill, into Preston, along Fountain, at King, down to Eagle, et cetera, et cetera. We could go on and on. But it's already got a lot of traffic concerns. Absolutely. How do you feel about the plans for what has long been considered an iconic site in the city? I, I know you kind of, last night at the meeting, sort of went back on the history that even led to 
ultimately the demolition of that iconic hotel after 130 years it stood there. But how are you feeling about something different coming to the site? So I don't, I don't have a problem with something different coming to the site because at this point we have a vacant lot that is not very attractive to look at. And, and it, it is a busy intersection and it is in many ways a gateway into Preston. So I certainly don't have a problem with something different because the Springs is gone. Um, however, I do think that what is being proposed as it has been brought before us is extremely ambitious And I don't see how it is going to work in that location without having a significant impact on everything around it. Is traffic a great concern for you as well? It absolutely is. And I know that we are looking at the area. It's slated to be an MTSA, a major um, transportation station area because it is 800 metres away from the proposed LRT station. That being said, we don't know for sure when and even if the LRT is going to come. So to put something in place that is banking so heavily on having the LRT that isn't a done deal would not, in my opinion, be a reasonable decision to make on behalf of the entire community. Oftentimes, Corey, when we hear from neighbours concerned about a development in their immediate community, the, the word NIMBY gets thrown around. Would that be an unfair characterization of what we heard last night at Council? I don't think that this is nimbyism. You know, nimbyism is not in my backyard, meaning people don't want anything. I think the concerns that were brought forward by the neighbours were very valid concerns about how what is being proposed is going to affect not only them, but the community as a whole. And that's one of the things that was made loud and clear. And we know that that intersection is difficult at the best of times. We it is landlocked. When we had some regional work being done at the end of September into October and it was it was closed and there were pylons down for a couple of days, the havoc that it wreaked on the flow of traffic through the area was insurmountable. It was very, you know, very difficult and we had to contact the region and see if they were able to shift the hours that they were working on it to allow the traffic to flow. We don't have other areas for people to get around. It's not like downtown Toronto where a road gets closed because there's construction and you can drive one or two blocks over or walk one or two blocks over. It is it is a T intersection. There are not other ways around. And that's what makes this very tricky. Yeah, you know, you, you read my mind on that because... As we went through this entire process from, you know, the iconic hotel falling into disrepair, ultimately the demolition order, etc. Now the vacant lot, which you so correctly point out, it, it's, it's not attractive. You want something there. But I've always looked at it, Corey, and I've wondered in, in 2023, almost 2024, what can we put there given with given how much the city and the area has grown. I mean, can we make anything work there that's going to add 
traffic to an already overwhelmed intersection. Well, and I think that's that's what it comes down to. And, you know, could we make something work? Yeah, we probably could make something work. But is what's going to work going to be something that's going to allow the developer to completely recoup their investment in the property and ultimately make money as developers need to do that's that's their goal and we need developers we need developers to provide us with homes and buildings and communities that we don't do in our purview as as levels of government but at the same token when the property was purchased as a let's renovate and redevelop the existing heritage building into something that's very different from now we have a blank slate, so to speak, but we only have so much space to work on. It's like you're you're trying to do a painting and you only have an eight and a half by 11 canvas. You can't cram 11 by 17's worth of art into that, that canvas and make it work. You have to go so small into such detail. And, and again, that's where this may not be the most appropriate use for that property. So I'm wondering if if we're on King Street looking at the site, you know, looking at what used to be the Preston Springs Hotel, is there opportunity on this parcel of land to divert, for lack of a better word, much of or most of the traffic out the, the back of it, let's say? like, And maybe that would, would that be Abraham Street? Like, is there an opportunity to move the traffic somewhere other than King and Fountain? Well, I'm sure anything's possible. There is the the developer does own property that fronts onto Abraham Street. So in theory, yes, traffic could go out there. But you're also looking at the topography of the property and the fact that it's going up a hill that we've heard is sandy and unstable and then you would be coming onto a relatively small residential street that would then enter into Jacob Street, which enters onto Fountain Street. And that stretch of Fountain Street north is two lanes. It's narrow. It's bound by property on either side. And we know how busy it gets when, you know, Toyota is you know, letting out or ATS is letting out and it's backed up all the way through Cherry Blossom. So the infrastructure in the area isn't built to support this number of cars. So shifting the cars away from, say, going out the front door to using the back door still puts everybody into the same space. Mm. Uh, Could the region support this or any development here at all by way of a roundabout? for example. Not that I love them, but might it be a solution at King and uh, Fountain? Well, I certainly don't think that looking into it would be a bad idea. Another point that's important to make is we already have the existing Crestview condos just just down the street, and they are on the same property as what we're referring to as the 255 King development that's going to have three towers. So, that's already been approved, that the previous council approved that development. So it is going to be built. We have the existing Crestview condos. And if anyone's ever watched the people from the Crestview try and leave their driveway and make a left turn, um, well, 
good luck. So yes, a roundabout at that intersection could quite possibly improve the flow of traffic. I'm not a traffic engineer. I don't know what they look at, but yes, that would be worth considering. And and that's one of the things that we at the city have to do. And anyone that's listened to any of the council meetings this term has probably heard me constantly harping on the fact that it's all well and good that the policy supports these developments and this density in various places. But we need to make sure that the infrastructure is in place as well. And I often speak about Speedsville Road, which is a two-lane road with no sidewalks, no paved shoulders, and we have a number of people leaving the River Mill subdivision on Equestrian Way and Speedsville Road just past Arascraft, and they leave that subdivision and they walk 800 metres on a gravel shoulder up to Maple Grove Road where they cross the street to catch the bus. And that, to me, is just a fatal accident waiting to happen. So where are we going from here at Preston Springs? I think it made a lot of sense to pause the meeting when you did last night. It was getting late. You want fresh eyes and fresh ideas and fresh minds to deal with all of this. So you've deferred it for a week. But where are we headed here? Is it possible that this proposal gets rejected, et cetera? Well, certainly that's a possibility. And this is this is just the public meeting. So this is to hear from the developer, to hear from the delegation, to get that information. And then ultimately what would happen at this point would be after council has heard from everybody, we would then make the decision whether or not it's going to go forward to staff to take everything into consideration and write a staff recommendation report back to council whether or not the developer is going to say, okay, you know, I was there, I listened, I heard, we want to take another stab at this. Um, that's, that's where we're at right now. So that's, as I said earlier, I hope the developer was listening to everyone. I think as it stands now and the way that it's been presented, I, I don't feel as though I can support it. I'm hoping that there's going to be some opportunity for discussion. I'm not against development. I think something needs to be there. But we also have to look at compatibility with the surrounding area, both with what's there now and what we know is on its way, specifically the 255 King development. It's some great insight into the inner workings of this public meeting, the process, etc. And I know a lot of people are paying attention to this site. Corey, thank you very much for making time for the show. Thank you very much, Mike. Have a super day. Thanks, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Corey Kimson is the Ward 3 councillor for the Preston area of Cambridge. It does not Her ward does not include specifically the Preston Springs site, but a block away and her ward begins. Nonetheless, as I said, I think this gives us really strong insight into the inner workings of getting a major development done in a community. And listen, the more I listened to that meeting last night and the more I listened to Corey this morning, I think we got ourselves a hornet's nest here. I just don't know how. On that site in the modern day, you can get anything done. Preston Springs Hotel was a beautiful building. It was an iconic Site. It was a fixture on Fountain Street for all of these decades, generations. But in the modern context, I just don't know how you make it work. I wanted to, and I don't mean just this specific development, but what you can do there, 
given all of the challenges that already exist. We're going to have to get really creative, I guess is what it comes down to. I wanted to share with you just a little bit more of what was heard at the meeting last night, and you'll get a sense. I mean, this continues to revolve around traffic. The thing that really, really concerns me is if you go down that street anywhere between 2 and 4 and 2 and 5, that's connected to a very heavily used industrial area. We have Toyota, all the feeder plants, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And the traffic that comes down there is enormous. The traffic that goes up there is enormous. How are you going to build and keep those streets open? I can appreciate new development. I think it's, it's too too intense. But how are those streets going to remain open so we can articulate the wheels of industry? It seems that the City of Cambridge and the region of Waterloo are willing to approve massive new developments, but loath to spend the money required to spend to deal with the additional traffic they will cause. Developments such as this site are certainly needed. And I certainly would like to see this property developed, but they should be built where the ion is already in service, such as the Krauss Carvich Waterloo property. If we ever get an LRT in 10 to 15 years, that isn't really going to help when this property is finished. The impact both during and after the build, traffic delays, well, that's an everyday occurrence that would become worse. Road design and limitation, especially with Fountain and Abraham Street, confusion on Abraham Street will be used. The impact, et cetera, I think we can all read. My first concern... Uh, for your consideration is the impact of increased traffic that is going to have on first responders. The other thing about the traffic that I will go back to is school buses. Right now, I have two nieces and a nephew that live next door to me that I help get on the bus all the time. And I'm going to tell you that probably on an average of almost once a week, the buses are late due to the traffic right now. It sets the disturbing precedence for future development. If we allow this to happen here, what's to stop the next developer closer to Shantz Hill from requesting the same thing? Just a little bit of what was heard at a public meeting last night in Cambridge around a proposal for a three-tower development with more than 750 residential units at Fountain and King in the Preston area, the former site of the Preston Springs Hotel. Can it work? Can we get three towers and 750-plus residential units onto that site? Can we get anything onto the site? Would love to hear from you, as always, on the show. It's the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. I don't think that this is nimbyism. You know, nimbyism is not my backyard, meaning people don't want anything. I think the concerns that were brought forward by the neighbours were very valid concerns about how what is being proposed is going to affect not only them, but the community as a whole. Corey Kimson is the councillor for Ward 3 in Cambridge. She joins us to talk about what was heard during a public meeting last night looking into a proposed development at the site of the former Preston Springs Hotel and even share her feelings on what's proposed now and what might work on what is truly a challenging site in the region generally. I mean, I just don't know. You're landlocked. And, and how you build something suitable and profitable without having too much of a negative impact on this landlocked area. I just don't know. I just don't know. It's going to take far brighter minds than mine. Let's go to the phones. Dave, good morning. Good morning, good morning Mike. Hey, I, um, I, do like the, I do like the spot. The problem is, is as, the, as you said, is the traffic, the infrastructure has to be in place. So I kind of agree with the city on this one, um, or the region, we'll say. Uh, you have to make sure it's feasible for everyone and not just the developer. 
Um, but, but there's a bigger issue here, and the, the issue here is because I'm in the business, and it's the region in the city of, you know, Kitchener, Waterloo, even Cambridge. Um, I know developers are waiting five years for permits, and I, I think that's the bigger problem. I think there's too many people, in the, there's too many cogs in the wheel, and, and too many people have their, their input and everything else just let the business go, go forward. And, and I, I think we have to streamline the business. Like this, the site we're talking now is, I don't see how it's going to work until we have proper roads in the area and get that in place first, and then then there's development. But there's other developments out there trying to build affordable housing, and uh, and and they're being held up on on permits and everything else with with the region. I mean, the region's not involved. The regions aren't developers. I mean, even the encampment out in um, you know that, that that Mr. Sweeney did. I mean, he was like you know three months behind and half a million over budget. I mean, let let's get professionals in there to get the developments done. And let's have the region step back and, and just push through some permits quickly and get, let's get moving and quit. Uh, it's nice to have a conversation, but uh, after the fifth and sixth conversation, it gets a little, a little long-winded. All right, Dave, appreciate that. And we certainly heard that at the public meeting last night from the developer, Paul DeHaas, of Haastown Developments, when it came to the Preston Springs Hotel when it was still standing. And he said it, it was process. It was all of the hurdles involved in the process that ultimately led to demolition uh, of the former hotel. I hear where you're coming from, Dave. I don't know that that necessarily solves this issue, but generally, I I hear where you're coming from. And I I don't know how close that is to reality or if if that's just a misperception on our part. But it certainly feels like there is a lot in the way of getting shovels in the ground. I get you. An update from the City News Centre, and then Canadian Academia unites against the targeting of universities in Gaza. The University of Waterloo Somali Students Association uh, shared uh, a, a very pointed post on social media yesterday. We'll get into the conversation next on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. This is where today's topics turn into today's talking points. It's local and it's Democratic Radio at its finest. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. This morning, Canada put out a strong and clear and comprehensive statement on our uh, perspective and positioning towards the Middle East conflict. Uh, I just got off the phone with a long and uh, detailed conversation with Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel. Uh, in which I outlined Canada's position. And we are committed to working uh, with partners in the region and around the world towards an enduring two-state solution. Canada is committed to ensuring that Israelis and Palestinians get to live in peace and security within internationally recognized borders uh, in peaceful and successful uh, states. And that is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau yesterday speaking with reporters after Canada voted in favor of a non-binding United Nations resolution that calls for an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. Yes, there were some hostile nations, Russia, Iran, that also supported this humanitarian ceasefire, along with others like New Zealand, Australia, etc. I I bring this up in the context of our next conversation, which I will 
begin by reading verbatim what was shared yesterday on social media by the Somali Students Association at the University of Waterloo. And their post reads, and I quote, In unity and solidarity, we, the undersigned student organizations at the University of Waterloo, urgently come together to implore the University of Waterloo to take immediate action in response to the ongoing genocide in Palestine and the escalating Israeli attacks on academic institutions. The tragic loss of Professor Safian Taya, a professor of physics, distinguished guest scholar at the University of Waterloo, and president of the Islamic University of Gaza, has left our community in deep grief, shock, and anger. Professor Taya was killed by an Israeli airstrike along with his daughter, sons, and grandchildren while they were in their home located in the Jabalia refugee camp. That from the Somali Students Association at the University of Waterloo yesterday. We are now joined on the program by Saleha Farouk, Government Relations with Justice for All Canada. Saleha, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much for making the time to talk about what clearly is an increasing issue on university campuses. What is it that you're calling on academia across this country to do? Uh, Certainly. Uh, So there is a joint effort by academic leaders as well as uh, students from colleges and universities. Um, So these higher level, sorry, higher education, um, education uh, communities coming together, calling for for the uh, education institutions to endorse the the call for for ceasefire that was of course made yesterday by uh, by Canada um, through through their statement and through their vote at the uh, United Nations um, and to commit to human rights values that all Canadian universities and colleges um, demonstrate, which is human rights for all, uh, a commitment to international law. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing these um, these these smaller demographics um, in Gaza uh, and the occupied territories being um, being targeted. So I'm talking specifically about people like um, teachers, professors, uh, higher education uh, workers, uh, such as academics. We also have other groups like people with disabilities, children, um, uh, women, women and girls. Um, so, so it's a way to shine a spotlight on on some of these groups that are that are disproportionately impacted. Um, I can confirm that some of the numbers um, that we're seeing in terms of um, professors, uh, Palestinian professors, uh, some of them are being killed in the hundreds, um, and we also have several hundred uh, Palestinian university students who are either, of course, having a major disruption to their education. Um, as well as being uh, being killed uh, under air raids and, and bombardment, uh, so we're asking for uh, Canadian universities and colleges to uh, be able just to um, acknowledge um, the harmful nature of of targeting a country's academic leadership. Um, that's almost an erasure of of, of leaders in a community, um, as well as. Um, uh, a negative impact on on the up and coming student generation. So that's part of our um, our asks and our objectives behind a joint letter 
um, that is coming up to almost a thousand signatures now. The joint letter is an, it's an open letter um, where professors across Canada have an opportunity to sign. The letter will be presented uh, to any and all Canadian major institutions. Uh, a copy of the letter will also be shared with Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. And there will be also a press conference in Ottawa this Friday covering the same topic of, of the killing of the professor that you had mentioned, um, Sofiane Baya, uh, who was also a visiting scholar last year at the University of Waterloo. You mentioned it, that joint letter is nearing now 1,000 signatories. Do you have support for this across the country from academic leaders, Saleha? Yeah, um, interestingly, we're seeing uh, professors, uh, Canadian professors from um, all kinds of universities across Canada. It's not merely um, a, a Ontario effort. Um, and and the, 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 the types of professors, um, they're, they're from all different kinds of backgrounds um, and, and walks of life. Uh, we're also seeing uh, people like, like PhD students or PhD candidates and uh, and similarly to the uh, Somali Students Association that you had um, introduced at the at the top of the show, uh, there are a number of student groups as well that have expressed interest to uh, endorse the letter um, as their as their student group. Uh, and we're also giving opportunities to uh, for, to uh, academic groups to to add their name and to endorse the cause. We also, as as we began this conversation played a clip of Prime Minister Trudeau uh, on the heels of Canada supporting that non-binding resolution calling for a ceasefire. And and I bring that up to point out that this is obviously a political issue where political leaders are involved. Why do you believe academic institutions such as the University of Waterloo should publicly take a stand here? I appreciate the perspective of this being a political issue, and I completely agree and I understand in one part um, the complex nature of, of what is transpiring. Um, I think that academic groups um, and others across Canada that, that don't play a part in politics uh, want to support uh, or want to voice their concern because they see it uh, and certainly we see it as, as more of a human rights issue, human rights first before before politics. Um, as you reported as well, there are casualties on both sides. You know, every life is precious. Uh, and in an instance like this, um, where there is uh, violence and killing and conflict, uh, where um, the, the, the the main uh, suffering demographic are civilians on both sides, I think that they see it most as a, as a human rights issue before anything. And especially looking at the the, the staggering toll, the, the numbers that are coming out of the region. Um, so I think that it's um, uh, it's a human rights issue, uh, which is being expressed by that academic community at this time, not necessarily political. What are you hearing about the impact this is having on students in our post-secondary institutions across this country? Um, well, certainly, I think that. A lot of our listeners and viewers can see the um, the, the, the sensitive uh, reaction uh, that this type of that these really Palestinian topic um, uh, brings out of people, and and certainly we we do see that, and we cannot deny that 
Um, but from our uh, the, the genocide prevention work that we do at our nonprofit, we run a human rights advocacy organization. We've been holding uh, almost weekly uh, peace trainings uh, for people, uh, and a lot of the topics of those peace trainings, to be quite honest, have been about mental health. Um, I think that a lot of the students uh, across campuses um, are impacted. Um, their mental health is quite impacted. A lot of them are feeling um, trauma, um, specifically those that are from the Palestinian diaspora, from Arab backgrounds, um, from from Muslim backgrounds as well. I think that a lot of the students um, are getting involved in in various in various uh, advocacy causes um, co- that that have been calling for a ceasefire, and a lot of them are feeling like like they are not heard. Uh, so. F- Certainly, overwhelmingly, it's it's a mental health issue that we are seeing right now in terms of Canadian students. Who will be participating in the press conference you're holding on Friday? Yep. Uh, So we have opened the press conferences to, uh, once again, uh, members of the Palestinian diaspora, mostly um, uh, PhD lecturers. Uh, So we have approximately four professors, PhD professors from Carleton University, as well as one individual, um, again, a PhD professor from the University of Ottawa. Um, so it's around five in, five individuals from Carleton and Ottawa University who are primarily um, lecturers uh, or professors. No elected representatives, MPs, MPPs, anything like that? Uh, no, um, uh, they are certainly most welcome to uh, to attend, and and I believe part of the the process is that a media advisory goes out um, to to inform uh, everyone of of the of the event happening in the press gallery. Uh, but but no, it, it's it's mostly uh, individuals um, from the from the academia uh, from uh, who represent Palestine. And a lot of them who have also lived experiences from from just being back at home. A couple of them used to teach in in, in Gaza uh, before before uh, moving to to Canada. Um, so it's a lot of that lived perspective, lived experience, um, and, and that that personal the, the the personal stories that they'll bring uh, to the press conference. No MPs. Salea, I appreciate your time on our show this morning. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks again for having me. Have a great day. You too. Bye bye. Bye-bye. Saleha Farouk handles government relations for Justice for All Canada. It's under that umbrella that the Somali Students Association at the University of Waterloo went public with a social media post yesterday. And again, I will just share the beginning of it with you. In unity and solidarity, we, the undersigned student organizations at the University of Waterloo, urgently come together to implore the University of Waterloo to take immediate action in response to the ongoing genocide in Palestine and the escalating Israeli attacks on academic institutions. To that end, my thoughts, and and this is why I, I wondered who would be in attendance at the press conference later this week and and why an academic institution should take a stand. I think I kind of get where we're at in the world today, where companies corporately, for example, have been known to take stands on social issues, on humanitarian causes. 
academic institutions have done the same. I'm just wondering from a very high level what gain there is. And we've even talked about this from, you know, strictly marketing perspectives before. But given the nature and the immediacy of social media today, oftentimes you are recognized by your absence of statements because it seems that people trip over themselves to get statements out, either condemning or supporting. But I do wonder, in such a minefield of political issues, what business an academic institution has even weighing in on this. And I can point you to the the dog's breakfast that was congressional hearings into higher education in the United States late last week. And and the result of that, which in, in one case was the resignation of the president of the University of Pennsylvania. I, so I, I'm just, I, I'm not sure when it comes to the role of an academic institution in all of this. I just want to also share tangentially based on Canada's decision to vote in favor of this non-binding United Nations resolution that calls for the immediate humanitarian ceasefire. I mentioned this at the beginning of the show today. The cracks are continuing to widen, maybe I would say, in the federal Liberal Party because Marco Mendicino shared on social media yesterday, and I'll quote from him, I disagree with Canada's vote at the United Nations today. I do not support its call for Israel to agree to what is effectively an unconditional ceasefire. At present, that would only place in further jeopardy the safety and security of of Israelis and Palestinians in Gaza. Earlier today, the Prime Minister issued a statement with the leaders of Australia and New Zealand. I supported its recognition of Israel's right to defend itself in the face of the existential threat posed by Hamas a terrorist organization as recognized under Canadian law. In my view, any ceasefire must be conditional on the following. Hamas must first release all remaining hostages. Hamas must stop using torture, non-combatants as human shields, and sensitive civilian infrastructure to protect itself. That's a former cabinet minister in the federal liberal government now publicly disagreeing with the Prime Minister. And again, I just think it shows the widening of the cracks within the federal Liberal Party. That's the view from here. I love hearing yours, though, too. We'll take your calls right after this. It's the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. I think that they see it most as a human rights issue before anything, and especially looking at the staggering toll, that the numbers that are coming out of the region. So I think that it's a human rights issue which is being expressed by the academic community at this time, not necessarily political. Saleha Farouk is the manager of government relations with Justice for All Canada. They've got an open letter jointly signed by almost a thousand academics across the country who are uniting against the targeting of universities in Gaza. You've heard from her. I've given you my high-level view. Let's go to the phones. Jersey Bill, good morning. Yeah, you know, in terms of human rights, I mean, this is really unfortunate. And what's most unfortunate is that it seems that all the major powers in the world, and we can include the United Nations as an institution as well, are seem to be powerless in order to stop the carnage on both sides. Um, 
I, I, I personally, I, I, I wish that um, America would have used some of its military power and maybe taken the place of the Israeli army and uh, actually provided some protection to Palestinian civilians. I realize the risks involved in that. But it's really sad to see, after all these years, the major powers simply don't want to do anything positive. They just want to stay on, on you know, essentially stay on the sidelines and maybe give um, give arms to both sides, but not intervene for, for any kind of a, a decent uh, solution that uh, would protect human life. All right, Billy, appreciate those thoughts. It has been going on for quite some time, that's for sure. Paul, good morning. Morning, how you doing? I'm all right. I got about 45 seconds. Yeah. Okay, people got to realize Israel isn't at war with the Palestinian people. They're at war with Hamas. The uh, there was a ceasefire. Hamas, you know, one one uh, one hostage gets released. Israel has to release ten prisoners. The um, who broke the ceasefire? Hamas. The Canadian government is not looking at doing what is right. They are counting votes to decide what their policy is going to be, and that's all it comes down to. Uh, Hamas is a terrorist organization. You do not negotiate with terrorists, and you you do what's right. You do you don't do by counting votes to see what your political position is going to be. All right, Paul. Appreciate the call. I heard somebody earlier today uh, describe liberal MPs as weather vanes, and depending on which way the wind blows is depends their policy direction on that issue or on that day. And and Paul's comments echo an email from Russell to Mike at 570news.com. This is not genocide. Israel only wants to eliminate Hamas. So there you go. Uh, stating that you want all Jews wiped from the face of the earth, that is genocide. And on that point, of course, nobody will disagree. We've got an update on the way from the City News Center. And then what got us talking in 2023? Well, among other things, bail reform. What stands out to me is how relevant the conversation we had earlier this year remains on this very day. We'll continue with the Mike Farwell Show right after this on City News 570 and Rogers TV. the thought that we don't actually get things done. We don't actually accomplish the things we set out to do. I just say that because as we approach the end of the year, it gives us an opportunity to listen back to and reflect on conversations we've had on this show this year. And it occurs to me in the context of this next conversation that we go back to January of 2023 and you'll remember at the time we were dealing with a a number of high profile crimes in Canada that were allegedly committed by accused people who were out on bail and that included the murder of an Ontario provincial police officer and so following that police leaders and politicians. There was a letter signed by Canada's premier, premiers, pardon me, directed to the federal government to say, hey, we need bail reform in this country. That's back in January. And here we are in December, 
And I'm not sure the conversation is any less relevant. In fact, we just spoke last week on the show. Or maybe it was the week before. Forgive me, I think it was the week before. But nonetheless, we... No, it was last week. Anyway, Farwell, get your dates correct. But we we spoke last week on the show, or I played for you a, a piece of audio from a recent episode of the OHL podcast, which... I know you're thinking, what's a hockey podcast got to do with bail reform? Well, Don Edwards was a goaltender who once played for the Kitchener Rangers, went on to a successful National Hockey League career, Buffalo Sabres, Calgary Flames, Toronto Maple Leafs, Team Canada. I could go on and on, but it's not about his hockey accomplishments. It's about the fact that in 1991, Don Edwards' parents were murdered by the ex-boyfriend of his sister. And the man convicted of that double murder was coming up for another bail hearing to get more freedom from a federal institution last Friday, December the 8th. And so once again, Don Edwards and other members of his family had to relive the trauma, prepare victim impact statements, and deal with all over again, what happened on that fateful day back in 1991. And so it it really was a reminder that victims carry with them this trauma, in some cases, for decades. And Don was very blunt that the entire situation soured him on the system here in Canada, such that he now makes his home in the United States. And so concerned is he about this offender's ultimate release and greater freedoms that both he and his wife, Floridians now, have permits to carry concealed firearms. That's how concerned he is. To this day, after what happened more than 30 years ago and the impact that it still has on him. So that's just by way of background to explain why I think This conversation is as relevant today as it was back in January when we first had it. Our guest, Carolyn Ewell, an associate professor of sociology from the University of Guelph, and and she presented some ways that we could reform our bail system here in Canada that would benefit both the public and the accused. Carolyn Ewell is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Guelph and joins us to talk about this. Carolyn, good morning. Good morning. Can we start with kind of where we're at and and the criticisms of the current system that really look at it as a a catch-and-release system? I mean, what is it that has critics making these calls for reform? What's wrong with the system today in their eyes? Well, you know, this is a really important time to to talk about bail, and I certainly understand uh, the concern on the part of politicians and, and public concern behind the calls for change in the wake of some very high-profile, uh, very tragic uh, crimes that have been allegedly committed by people um, on bail. So what the politicians are currently sort of asking for is an end to this, what, what they're describing as a catch-and-release system. Um, this idea is not new, and, and really it's, the suggestion is that people are are caught and charged for the crime, uh, released into the community with bail conditions. Um, and the suggestion is that they're sort of immediately and willfully breaching those conditions. 
and then, um, you know, returning to custody. So the concern is that the bail system as it currently operates is not working effectively to keep communities safe. Um, so it is an important question to ask. The, the premiers um, and, and Mr. Polyev have suggested that making a change to the criminal code uh, would be an important step to sort of toughen up the bail system um, and, and make it make it tougher and, and hold accused more accountable. Uh, research doesn't suggest that that would be the path forward. That rather than changing the law on bail, which right now does provide justices with, with lots of room to detain people who are considered dangerous or who might not show up for court, um, that's not the best response if we're looking to improve bail. But certainly how we implement the law on bail can and should be improved. So how can we make those improvements then in the way that we implement the law on bail? So the first thing that we really need to focus on is speedier justice. And again, this is not the first time you'll hear hear a criminologist talking about the need for for speedier justice, where we see accused moving much more swiftly to to trial. Uh, So this has two benefits. One, you reduce the amount of time that accused people either spend um, in remand, where they're still presumed innocent, so they're in custody, before they get to their trial and sentencing if they're convicted. You would also reduce the amount of time accused people spend in the community on conditions uh, before they move to their their trial and and sentencing if it's appropriate. So that really will benefit uh, community safety um, and individual presumption of innocence, you know, individuals accused rights. You also decrease the likelihood that accused are going to accrue additional charges while they're in the community and just get hold into this sort of revolving door of justice. So speedier justice is absolutely essential. We also need much better access to community resources. So my colleague and I have just completed um, interviews with over 35 bail supervisors in Ontario, and they consistently talk about homelessness as being a huge problem, uh, lack of, of mental health resources, uh, lack of beds for for uh, substance abuse and addiction and and trauma, and when you're struggling with homelessness and and mental health and addiction, following bail conditions is extraordinarily difficult. Really, uh, they become an afterthought to meeting your your very um, sort of basic day to day needs. And and focusing on community resources is really a solution that lies outside of criminal justice. Right, that's not something that changing the law on bail is going to address. So that would be a second uh, way to improve the implementation of bail. The third thing that's urgently needed in Canada is much better collection of statistics on bail. Currently, you know, we don't have enough data that allow us to make meaningfully informed evidence-based responses. So for example, what is the length of time that people are on bail? You know, we're hearing particularly in this sort of post-pandemic period, accused can be on bail for months to years. That's a very long time. Um, and, and when they are on bail, how many conditions do they have? What kind of conditions do they have? When they breach, what are the nature uh, of, of the breaches? Are these violent crimes? Are they less serious uh, thefts? Um, those types of things. Following breaches, what happens? when the accused return to court. Are they remanded? Do they get released into the community again with with uh, more restrictive or onerous conditions? 
what are the jurisdictional differences because we do know that um, how bail is implemented across the province and across the country varies quite considerably. So, you know, can we learn lessons from what's working well across the different jurisdictions? Um, And something else that we need much better data on, which I think has become particularly apparent uh, given some of the recent um, crimes that have reached the papers is what is the average length of time an accused is free in the community after they have been caught breaching their bail conditions. So there's a, there's a warrant issued for their arrest because they're in breach of conditions. How long do they remain at large in the community? So again, that's another implementation of bail issue. Yeah, and on that last piece, that's one I've been coming back to quite a bit because it brings to mind for me that terrible stabbing tragedy in Saskatchewan where we knew yes. that, right? Because and, and that spoke to me of a complete and utter lack of, well, I'm assuming resources. I don't want to assume that the police or whoever it was responsible for upholding those conditions just didn't care. I I suspect they had far higher priorities and not enough people power. And that is the, again, I I don't have data on that, but that is exactly uh, what I would land on to in terms of the explanation. Certainly the police are concerned um, at having individuals at large in the community when there's a warrant for their arrest, but I'm, I'm quite certain that it's a resourcing issue that would prevent them from following up on those cases. And again, if we were able to, to have speedier justice and, and not have people on bail for so long in the first place, th- that would also contribute uh, to just to not having people in the community. Either you, know, you get them to their trial date and they are either sentenced and convicted or acquitted, but, but then the system moves forward. You will get no argument from me, Carolyn, ever on speedier justice. I would love to see us be able to accomplish that uh, feat for sure. But something you said when talking about speedier justice, you referred to this revolving door. And, and that makes it sound to me as though the, the bail conditions that are set, like they are being followed because these individuals end up perhaps breaching those conditions and that's where the revolving door begins i mean you can't be in that revolving door if bail and its conditions are not actually being applied that's correct i mean i do think i I think that the you know you you started off asking me about catch and release i don't think that's an accurate description of the bail system i think there are instances and certainly this is corroborated by by people who are working the front lines of bail like bail supervisors there are few cases where, where the revolving door is an accurate description, but it is not accurate in the vast majority of cases. Most individuals on bail do attempt to follow their bail conditions. Um, and when you, when you see this revolving door, I mean, it is evidence that, that individuals are being breached for conditions. The challenge really is, though, when we think about the revolving door is, you know, what are they being breached for? So, for example... If they have a curfew and they're not allowed to be outside of the residence at 9 p.m. and they are outside of the residence at 9:30, that that is a breach and that could lead to additional criminal charges, but it's for non-criminal behavior. So you don't want individuals getting lengthier and lengthier and lengthier criminal records for relatively um, non-serious offenses. And again you really reduce the likelihood of that with speedier justice. 
I wonder also if bail today is, if there are any inequalities in how it is applied. Have you noticed any through your work? Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, there's, there's plenty of evidence that shows that people who are uh, black, indigenous, have mental health issues, uh, who are homeless, already have a more difficult time accessing bail under the current system. So certainly sort of your your socioeconomic status and and other aspects um, definitely shape the ability to uh, successfully navigate the bail system. So this seems to suggest to me, Carolyn, that what we have in place as a system of bail or for bail, I'm not sure how I should phrase that, but anyway, a bail system in Canada, what we have in place is, could work if only we were to implement it appropriately. I would agree with that assessment. Okay. I think that the law on bail is sound. Um, what needs to change is is the implementation. And you know the main one of the main goals at the bail stage is a very important balance of the rights of the accused um, focusing on the presumption of innocence along with public safety and confidence in the administration of justice i think that that our 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 law is sound something that's difficult for all of us to grapple with is that we have to recognize that our systems will never be perfect um, and and sometimes we are going to um, detain people who are legally innocent, whose charges are withdrawn, or there's there's no evidence to suggest that they were um, that they're guilty of the offense. So they're they're sort of detained when they shouldn't have been. And there's also going to be instances where we release individuals who, after the fact, we realize you know posed posed a threat and should should in fact have been detained. And that's, that's a difficult reality. It's a terrific conversation, and I really appreciate your insight into it. Carolyn, thank you very much for joining the show. Thanks very much for having me. Enjoy the rest of your day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Carolyn Yule is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Guelph. She joined us a way back when, a way back in January, to talk about Canada's bail system and how it could be reformed to not only benefit the public, but also the accused. And and a couple of things certainly struck me from that conversation. Our systems will never be perfect, and I think we recognize in our heart of hearts, it's sometimes hard to see into those hearts when we're upset about things, maybe even outright angry about them. But the system is made up of human beings, And we are fallible creatures, aren't we? So there are always going to be imperfections. But another point that stood out to me is when Carolyn said, the law on bail is sound. What needs to change is the implementation. And as I said at the outset, this was one of the conversations that got us talking at one point this year, going way back to January. And here we are in mid-December and... Dare I say, the conversation is as relevant today as it was 11 months ago. Now, 
there are some amendments to strengthen Canada's bail system that will take effect in just a few weeks. On January the 4th, 2024, there will be targeted changes to the criminal code's bail regime to address serious repeat violent offending with firearms, knives, bear spray, and other weapons. The changes made at the bail stage will also address the enhanced risks posed by intimate partner violence. The changes seek to improve the safety of people and community across Canada. That will come into effect January the 4th of next year, so just a few short weeks from now. Is it a move in the right direction? Is it strong enough yet? I think these conversations continue, don't they? This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. You don't want individuals getting lengthier and lengthier and lengthier criminal records for relatively non-serious offenses. And again, you really reduce the likelihood of that with speedier justice. But of course, you do want to see lengthier and lengthier sentences for people who commit violent crimes, right? Crimes that involve firearms, crimes related to intimate partner violence. And I bring those crimes up because those were among the crimes targeted with amendments made to strengthen Canada's bail system. That voice you just heard was that of Carolyn Ewell, who's an associate professor of sociology at the University of Guelph. Carolyn joined us on the show earlier this year to talk about bail reform in this country because we had borne witness to a number of high-profile crimes, including the murder of an Ontario provincial police officer. And the accused in these cases were people who were supposed to be under bail conditions. And so political leaders, police leaders, premiers sent a letter to the federal government saying, hey, we need to do something here about the bail system. And I just, I get the sense that the conversation remains as relevant today as it was even back in January when Carolyn joined us on the show. Just reminding you of those amendments which will be under Bill C-48 taking effect January the 4th of next year. So under a month from now. The amendments make targeted changes to the criminal code's bail regime to address serious repeat violent offending with firearms, knives, bear spray, and other weapons. Changes made at the bail stage will also address the enhanced risks posed by intimate partner violence. These changes seek to improve the safety of people and communities across Canada. That is straight, of course, from the Government of Canada's website, so take it for what it's worth, but that's what Bill C-48 intends to do. We intend on getting you to the City News Centre for an update and then continuing our conversations here on the show today. Don't forget, it's Wednesday, and that means you get the opportunity for some open lines just after 11.30, so about a half an hour from now. We'll open the phone lines for your questions and or comments. Uh, The way it usually goes, there are more uh, comments than questions, but that's okay. It's open lines for you to express your thoughts. So ask a question, make a comment during that open line half hour from 11.30 until noon. Right after this update from the City News Centre, we're going to take a closer look at Canada's food price report. 
will tell you how much more you should expect to spend on groceries next year, why you should expect to see those increases, how we determine it, and then also, just for added pleasure, because, you know, tis the season, how much more are you going to spend on that holiday meal (laughs) this year? We'll talk about all of it coming up right after this update from the City News Centre. Stay with us on the Mike Farwell Show, City News 570 and Rogers TV. I feel it necessary to preface this next conversation by reminding you to not shoot the messenger, okay? We are just here to share the information. It's not our fault, so to speak. But what we're going to take a look at is the annual food price report here in Canada, which has found that food prices could rise from 25 to 4.5% in 2024. Now... If you want a bright side to that, that's less than what was predicted for 2023, which was an increase of 5 to 7%. So 25 to 4.5% by way of increase next year is lesser. This report is a collaboration between Dalhousie's Agri-Food Analytics Lab, the Vector Institute in Toronto, and the University of Guelph's Aural Food Institute. Now... Christina Kupferschmidt is a PhD student at the U of G and the Vector Institute for Artificial Intelligence, where she researches responsible applications for machine learning. And Christina makes time for our program this morning. Good morning, Christina. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Thanks very much for making the time to talk with us about this, because as I said, I mean, we're just the messengers here, right? But you you help to do the research that tells us, you know, what we should be expecting by way of increases. How do you determine this? Yeah, so this is a really interesting project. So we use uh, like a data-driven approach. So we look at historical data. Um, and use like very some very simple models and some more complicated machine learning models. And then those results are taken by a team of food economists and food experts. And they're kind of adjusted to account for things that we can't include and we don't have data to support. It tells us that with the 25 to 4.5% increase next year, a family of four will see uh, an increase of just under $702 on their annual grocery cost. So probably not the the news people are uh, anticipating eagerly at this time of year. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, my family also personally was hoping for a decrease in food prices, but it really doesn't look like that's going to happen this year, given the current economy um, and the different factors that we looked at. What are the factors, Christina, that impact our food prices? So I like to say that food prices are a very complex system. So there are so many different factors that are contributing to the changes in food prices. And really, we just have uh, data that represents like a very fragmented picture of what actually contributes. But this year, our modeling focused on um, looking at 
characteristics related to climate factors. So in Canada, we experienced like many climate disasters this past year. We looked at economic variables and we also tried to find proxy variables to account for the geopolitical concerns that are happening globally. Are there any particular products within our grocery spectrum, if you will, that we might see greater increases in? Yes. So unfortunately, the categories that are expected to see the biggest increases of 5 to 7 percent are meat, vegetables and bakery items. We, we talk a lot about greedflation, shrinkflation, along with inflation. But is there anything to suggest, Christina, that there is excess profit taking happening within the industry? I think that this is a, is a very popular question, especially given in the news, there's been a lot of action related to this just recently. Um, I thought a very interesting statistic that was presented in the report was that 30% of Canadians do believe that there's some level of profiteering happening. So it's really, there's like this real distrust in the current system. However, the Bank of Canada data, when they did look into it, found that despite there being major increases in 2020, those seem to be inflationary. And even in the past year or two, we're seeing markups that are almost near zero. So it, we currently do not have the evidence to support that this is happening, but it's not to definitively say um, either way. But I, I think that this will be an area people really continue to investigate in the upcoming year because there's such a level of distrust. How does artificial intelligence help you in gathering the necessary data for this report? intelligence doesn't necessarily help us to gather the data. So we as uh, researchers went and we spoke with food economists and they said, these are the factors that we think contribute to changes in food prices. We found public repositories of data from things like Statistics Canada, the Federal Reserve um, data set in the U.S., and then kind of curated this data set to use in our machine learning or AI models. And really, I, I think machine learning has like a very, uh, essentially a, a culture of distrust also. But really, in this case, what it's doing is trying to find complex patterns that we're not able to see as scientists. Um, but it can see complex patterns that are emerging between the different types of data that we're streaming in. Is it more accurate when we analyze it in this manner? Yes. So for some categories, it is. And for some categories, it's not. So for instance, bakery predictions were actually the most accurate, just using very basic statistical models that have been used for a long time. But things that are a bit more complicated, like the vegetables, meat and seafood, um, did benefit quite a bit from using pretty complex um, AI approaches. Are we are we seeing any do you, do you note any similarities between the, da- the, the data you've gathered this year and, and in years past? Yes. Yeah, so some of the, I think some of the factors are, are, we're following like a similar trend in the economic data. We're definitely seeing some of the things that we were seeing the year prior. Um, however, this was the first year that we included climate variables. So we did not um, account for that. Given the complexity of grocery pricing, as you've already acknowledged, Christina, is this, I I mean, I get the sense and, you know, the older I get, the more I come to recognize and or complain about, you know, everything gets more expensive all the time. But this is something that I think we should just expect annually. It's going to cost us more and more 
to buy the food that we need to consume. Yes, and I, I think, like, I definitely have a similar sentiment. I think the the prices of food, per se, may not be the problem, but it's definitely food affordability. So in Canada, we're seeing, like, a very complex situation where affordability is really challenging for a lot of people. Factors like housing, utilities are all, and, like, the price of car, the price of fuel, um, it's all kind of contributing to this lack of affordability. So it's not food prices alone that are making it challenging. It's like the fact that so many different pieces are going up at the same time, seemingly. And I think it's, it's making it very hard for Canadians. It, it, and it forces us to make decisions, too, around what we're buying where. And when it comes to groceries, we're probably looking at cutting as many corners as we can. Yes, absolutely. And I think a really interesting finding of this report was despite the fact that food prices went up pretty substantially last year, like they went up almost 6%, they found that the average Canadian was actually spending less on their groceries than they were um, before. So this really suggests that people are changing their behavior when it comes to shopping for groceries. When you mentioned increases to the cost of fuel, Christina, I couldn't help but think a contributing factor to increasing grocery prices has got to be the cost of transportation to get it to the store. Absolutely. I think in the report that was recognized as one of the major contributing factors is the heightened transportation expenses. Christina, I really appreciate the work you've done on this and the time you've taken to explain it. Thank you very much for joining the show. Thank you for having me. Christina Kupfer-Schmidt is a PhD student at the University of Guelph and the Vector Institute for Artificial Intelligence, where she researches responsible applications for machine learning. The Vector Institute for Artificial Intelligence, the Aural School at the University of Guelph, and the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University contributed to the annual food price report, which tells us that prices are expected to increase between 25 and 4.5% next year, which means a family of four is going to see an increase of just over $700 in their annual grocery bill. Really interesting, though, what Christina said about food prices being up on average 6% in the past year And yet our overall spending was down, which shows, I think, how much, how many corners we found to cut. I wonder how many of us decided to do with less because of those increased costs. And it's it's one of those things, right? When it comes to the bills that you have to meet and what income you determine to be disposable. Are you staying away from some of the higher quality or more nutrient-dense foods that you'd been enjoying in the past and going for the least expensive stuff you can find? Which brings with it, of course, as we know, a host of other problems. I also promised, so along with the just under $702, uh, to be exact, the number shows us that the increase... Uh, in food costs next year, the grocery bill will go up seven oh one seventy nine seven hundred and one dollars and seventy nine cents next year. Because we are entering that time of year, let's talk about your holiday dinner, which the folks at the Agri Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University tells us the average traditional Christmas meal 
for a group of four to six people, uh, that's a small family. But you know what? It, maybe you can divide this into groups of four or six, right? So if you have 16 people, divide it four ways. But it'll the, for four to six people, it's going to cost you just under $105 on average for your traditional Christmas meal this year. Although food prices are slowly dropping back down, the Agri-Food Analytics Lab tells us, the food items typically associated with the holidays, well, they're still pretty high. I wonder if there's a correlation there. Turkey is up 5%. Potatoes up 6.6%. Carrots up 12.8%. You can leave the carrots off my plate. I like them raw, not cooked. The per unit costs of a full turkey dinner with gravy and rolls, sign me up for that, fruit cake, you can leave that off mine, and eggnog is approximately $9.77 per person. That doesn't sound too bad, but the overall meal, about 105 bucks for a group of four to six to have the traditional Christmas meal this year. Are you planning on cutting any corners? Are you going to do it? a little bit differently. How about boxed lunches for everybody at Christmas? 519-570-2545, star 570, 1-800-570-5715. Nothing says Merry Christmas like a package of Mr. Noodle. Just throwing it out there. Kyle, good morning. Good morning. Um, Overall, I would say that we definitely have cut our costs. I mean, in the summertime, we're, we're obviously planting much more vegetables, to sustain, you know, even for the winter time. Um, but we've actually, actually, the other thing that we've done is we have actually looked at different types of cookbooks. And one of them that I've got um, online um, is called the Peasantry Cookbook. And what it does is it actually tells you meals that they ate during the Great Depression or when, you know, obviously the income wasn't as high. And, uh, you know, when people were scrounging to make meals off of smaller things. So, yeah, like, I can tell you right now, like do, did, uh, last night I had macaroni and cheese and a little bit of spam just to make it a, a full meal, right? Um, so there's, there's things like that, but uh, there's only Ashley and I this year for Christmas. And uh, I'll tell you right now, the only, re- the only way that meal price is going to go up is if Swiss Chalet uh, uh, makes their prices a little bit higher on the festive meal. But other than that, the, the overall in terms of groceries, growing more in the backyard even next year, we're planning on putting more and definitely um, recipes. That's for sure. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Kyle. Appreciate the call. You remind me of me, not only in my college days, but when I started in broadcasting as well. Uh, mac and cheese, throw some tuna in there. And all of a sudden, <laughs> it was a meal. And it's funny you mentioned the festive special because that came up recently with a friend who said he couldn't believe how much, I think it was, that was Fixie, right? I think it was Paul Fixter. We were chatting on one of our trips this weekend. We had a lot of work to do with the kitchen arrangers, but Paul and I just got to talking. He, he expressed surprise at how much more expensive the festive special was compared to years past. Well, welcome to our food inflation along with everything else. Alex, good morning. Good morning. Uh, yeah, I think you're going to lay a big chunk of this on the carbon tax, like, quite honestly. 
Yeah, I, I mean, and, and I've heard that, and I, I don't dispute that, especially when you look at the transportation costs increasing to get stuff to the stores. But you probably heard just this week, right, the, I think it's the Prosperity Institute that did an analysis and said there, there was a negligible impact of the carbon tax on food prices. So I don't know. Well, I've talked to farmers. I get you. I'm just and, telling and you what the Prosperity they, Institute said. They're telling said. me what their diesel fuel costs are. Yep. And, and I've talked to truckers. And they, they actually itemize it down to the carbon tax. And the worst part is they charge the HST on the carbon tax. And it's a massive, it's a massive amount. So I, I, don't know where, I don't know where they're coming from. You talk to any farmer, any trucker, and they'll say, hey, my fuel bills are crazy. Yeah, I, I, I get you. And, and I've heard the same thing. Like, that is not an unfamiliar argument, right? You want to look at the increasing costs for... Your groceries look no further than the carbon tax. I'm just pointing out what I believe it was the Prosperity Institute. No, the Institute for Future Work. Ah, I'm going to find it. But And look, take it for what it's worth. But that was a different analysis that came out just in the last few days. I get it. And listen, we're all feeling it. $702 more for groceries next year. How are you intending to cope with that? Are you preparing now? This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570 and Rogers TV. I think a really interesting finding of this report was despite the fact that food prices went up pretty substantially last year, like they went up almost 6%, they found that the average Canadian was actually spending less on their groceries than they were before. So this really suggests that people are changing their behavior when it comes to shopping for groceries. Christina Kupfer-Schmidt is a PhD student at the University of Guelph and the Vector Institute for Artificial Intelligence, one of the organizations that was involved in Canada's food price report, which predicts we'll pay just over $700 more for groceries next year. And I did, as I promised, found that reference. Jim Stanford, an economist and the director of the Centre for Future Work, says there's new data that shows grocery profits may remain elevated, but there's no connection between carbon pricing and food inflation. Alex called before to express something we've heard often, and I get it, and I'm inclined to agree. I'm just saying, just this week, Jim Stanford was talking about no correlation between carbon pricing and food inflation. What data he used and how he analyzed it, I, I don't have that information, so you can take it with a grain of salt, but... That's the different viewpoint that's out there. We'll go back to the phones. Mike, good morning. Good morning, Mike. Um, I have decreased my spending on food, but here's what I've done. Um, From about June through late September, I have a garden, and it provides me with all the vegetables that I need. The second thing I've been doing is stop buying meat at local grocery stores because... I can get it a lot cheaper at a local butcher, or I have bought like a side of beef, a pig, and I I put it in my freezer and I eat it from there, and I can get it at a lot lesser cost. Um, so I very rarely go to the grocery stores anymore. I just go to more local butchers. I get my eggs from a local farmer, and that kind of stuff because. I can't afford the, in some cases, I can't afford or I will not pay 
the prices of the grocery stores right now because it's just too damn expensive. Yeah, I hear where you're coming from, Mike. You're becoming self-sustaining in that regard. Larry, good morning. Good morning. Uh, this is more for your better half, a recipe for uh, carrots that you will eat. Uh, what what makes you think I don't make my own carrots, just out of curiosity? Well, you said you eat them raw. Yeah, I just I just prefer them to cook. I don't like cooked carrots. But what makes you think that my beloved has to make my carrots for me? Well, uh, just, just a guess. Okay, okay. Maple syrup carrots. Maple syrup. <laughs> a little bit of brown sugar and maple syrup. Stick them in the oven. You won't find anything sweeter. All right. And Larry, clearly you know. And you know what? My beloved is probably working on the recipe right now because she does make my carrots for me. And she doesn't make them often because she knows I don't love them. That's how much she loves me. You see how that works? Uh, I love you enough to get you an update from the City News Center. How Nothing says I love you like here's your update from the City News Center. And then we're going to open up the phone lines for questions and or comments. So if you've got them, ask them or Make them. Open lines for you in the next 30 minutes here on the Mike Farwell Show. Stay with us. City News 570 and Rogers TV. Welcome to your midweek snack. Speaking of snacks, how about that spread in the kitchen, Devin Robertson? Devin's our guy on the other side of the glass. I had no idea that this was coming to the radio station today. It's like a Christmas dinner out there, or at least a Christmas brunch. I know. I was caught off guard by it. You and me both. I, I, as usual, brought my foodstuffs with me to work, and I went to the kitchen to clean my dishes only to walk into a virtual smorgasbord of deliciousness. There, There's a lot going on out there. A lot of great stuff. There's a lot of great stuff. No judgment, right? Absolutely none. I picked up a piece of sausage with my fingers and I just ate it. Like, I just ate the sausage. You got to do what you got to do. Got to do what you got to do. I didn't know the food was going to be there. I was not prepared for the foodstuffs. But it was delicious and a nice little bonus for us today. Absolutely. I call this the midweek snack because it's a 30-minute opportunity for open lines here on the program. We do 60 minutes on both Monday and Friday. Mondays from 11 until 12 with rant or rave. And then on Fridays from noon until 1. I'm still getting used to the new times. It's noon till 1, though, on Fridays with Free Phones Friday. At 11.30 on Wednesday mornings, we open up the phones for questions and or comments. This was actually a listener-submitted idea. And I think it's lasted longer than any other listener-submitted idea so far. So thanks again to Mark for saying, you know what you should do? You should have a segment for question or comment. So if you got a question, ask it. If you got a comment, make it. 519-570-2545. Star 570-1-800-570-5715. John, you're first. Good morning. Comments. Yes, sir. Um, 
I'm wondering where Doug Craig is on this Preston Springs uh, development. I haven't heard anything from him. What would you like to hear from him? Well, he's always has a comment about stuff in Cambridge. <laughs> uh, interesting. So, I mean, he wasn't the mayor when the demolition happened, right? Catherine McGarry was. He's now a regional councillor, which is not that, a city councillor. So. Yeah, that's where I'm coming from because, it. I mean, that is a regional road down there and stuff. Well, that's true. Traffic. Yeah. Anyway... Um, I also wanted to comment on the price of food. Sure. I uh, fortunately have a uh, have uh, access to uh, the United States uh, frequently. Uh, we bought a turkey down there for 99 cents a pound. Come on. 99 oh, cents what? a pound? Is it a butterball? It, it, it was a butterball and it was at Walmart. <laughs> really? So what you're <laughs> yeah. telling me, John, is if I make the trip across the border. Like, if I just drive down through Fort Erie, I'm going to get myself a great deal on my holiday meal. You will. Hmm. Um, there's another There's another um, chain store down there called Aldi, A-L-D-I. Oh, yeah, I've seen it. We don't, yeah, we don't have those in Canada, and I can tell you that uh, a couple of weekends ago, I bought two packages of onions, like green onions, <laughs> 99 cents. Around here, they're a buck seventy-nine. There you go, almost half and price. Even, even with the forty percent difference in the money, it's still it's still uh, some things are still a better deal down there. If you have the opportunity to go, all right, righty. Yeah, John, I appreciate that. Have a good day. Thank you. You as well. Listen, we'll take all the tips we can get when it comes to saving a buck or two on our grocery bill. I'm not likely. I mean, that's a pretty long trip, right? We're round trip with the shopping included four to five hours for sure. And that's if, and we all know that's a big if, the traffic moves smoothly. There's not too much of a lineup at the border, et cetera. That seems like a long way to go for the deal. But if you're going regularly to the States, or maybe you know somebody who is, or maybe it is worth it to you. Hey, again, I'm here for all of the tips. We actually had this conversation just this week around the dinner table and look there are certain things that we have a family as a family will not compromise on because i don't know like for for me one of them like i'm not going to start buying the no offense to the buck of beers i'm sure there are many relatively tasty buck of beers but that's that's one of the places where i'm like yeah you know what I, i can't see me doing that but in terms of what we buy in bulk because we have the space to store it Right. And and where we buy it from in order to get the best price on it. Heck yeah. I, I'm all for things like that. And that's what we've certainly been doing when it comes to fighting grocery inflation along with. And I think our guest in the last half hour made such a good point. Right. It's not just groceries. And that's that's part of the challenge here. We are feeling the squeeze in so many areas that when it comes to the grocery store, it's just another place where we're feeling some pain, right? The cost of living has gone up so significantly. So we're fighting it. And John, I appreciate the tips on how we could save some money. Uh, To your point, by the way, on where was, or your initial point, where's Doug Craig on the whole Preston Springs thing? I'll tell you what, tell you what, it just so happens that I already have scheduled a chat with Doug on Friday morning on the show because he thinks that the uh, tax system in this country is broken and he's got some pretty interesting background 
on it and some theories on how we can improve it. The whole Toronto New Deal, well, Doug's got his own ideas for how we can get a new deal. So when he's on to talk about that, I'll ask him how he's feeling about Preston Springs and whether or not he wants to personally build us a roundabout at Fountain and King. Okay? How's that sound? Even though I hate roundabouts. I think if, 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 if I had to choose, hey, Farwell, which do you hate more, roundabouts or Sean's Hell? <laughs> Am I going to have a tough time making the choice between those two? I don't know which one I hate more. I know I like Bob more than both of those things, though. And Bob is on the phone with us. Hello, Bob. Thanks, Mike. You're welcome. <laughs> you know that I hate to break it to you, friend, but that doesn't put you in very high standing. I mean, I really hate roundabouts. I really hate Sean's Hell, but I like you a little bit more than both of those things I hate. Oh, I appreciate that. Okay, you're welcome. You're welcome. Okay, I just, I'd just like to say it's nice to see a government and seeing what they're going to do. It says, and that's saying that they want to cut taxes and cut waste and not saying what that waste is. Is it money to the homeless? Is it money to the seniors? Or is it money to the environment? I wish you'd just speak a little more clearly. It's just saying anybody, you know, making these little points. And that's Mr. Pierre I'm talking about. Okay, so I, I must have missed the ad and forgive me for that. So what ad have you seen or heard that tells you what somebody's going to do? Well, they saying that the Liberal government saying that they will invest in the hydro and invest in the infrastructure, invest in keeping the environment clean. That's what that's what the Liberal ads are saying right now? Yeah, that's what some of them are saying, yeah. Okay, I haven't I haven't heard them, I'm sorry. That's okay. Okay. In case if I don't catch you before Christmas, Christmas, Mike, I hope you have a good one. Thanks, buddy. I hope you have a good Christmas, too. Bye. All right, bye-bye. I haven't been paying enough attention, clearly, to the political advertising right now. I will say this. I've long been a fan. I would prefer to hear what you are going to do for me as opposed to what the other guy is not doing for me. Or gal. But the reality, of course, is it's so much easier to be in opposition because all you have to do is is run on the other person's poor record. And guess what? That's a huge advantage for Pierre Poiliev and the Conservatives right now because, you know, there haven't exactly been eight years of sunny ways now, have there? So it's a pretty easy way to go. But I am always more interested. Less attack, more information, please and thank you. What are you going to do for me? As opposed to just attacking the other party, I'd love to know what it is you're going to do. Mike, question or comment over to you. Uh, comment, Mike. I okay. was watching the recent Waterloo Regional School Board meeting, um, and there was the issue of parental rights that came up. The first thing that kind of disturbed me was all these trustees had their on the back of their laptops had their personal agenda items pride, parental rights, and all this other stuff on their laptops. In most in most legislatures, you're not allowed to do that. The second thing I saw was there were three trustees after two well-spoken individuals came up and asked for them to sign a petition to further define parental rights. And the, eight, the usual eight said no, because it's going to impact children. Well, one of the delegates 
was a trans person who spoke very well, and she said she had no problem with this, and it needs to be defined. But, Mike, I can't believe that our, that our Ministry of Education is not providing guidance or defining what this should be. Um, they, and a couple of the amendments on their policy changes, they didn't even want to use the word parent or guardian. So I think to clarify this and to allow for freedom of expression of both speech and religion, we need this to be clarified at the provincial level. And that's my thoughts for the day. All right, Mike. Thanks for sharing those thoughts for the day. I did notice... Uh, courtesy of a story in this morning's Waterloo Region record that there is some updated policy language at the Waterloo Region District School Board and within those policies the language will evolve from parents or legal guardians to families or caregivers which I look semantics you want to pick a net I don't know is there is there that much of an issue around the use of parent or legal guardian in the language of school board policies? I don't think so. In that, to that end, does it matter to me a whole lot that you want to change the language to families or caregivers? Probably not. Like I, I just can't get too fussed about it. But I, I did wonder why this is an issue that the school board felt needed addressing at a meeting. And then I couldn't help but notice in the same story that a spokesperson for Ontario's education ministry was quoted as saying, school boards should focus more on academic achievement. And this is why I shared that simply because this is where we are at in public education today, right? It's where we're at. Focus on academic achievement. Meantime, boards like ours are focused on updating language and policies to change it from parents or legal guardians to families or caregivers. I think we could eliminate the level of bureaucracy slash political administration that is the school board and not miss a beat. That's what I think. But I don't hear a whole lot of people supporting me in that. And that's too darn bad because, gosh, I think it's a good idea. This is the Mike Farwell Show. Question or comment on City News 570 and Rogers TV. Since this is the question or comment segment of the show. We do it every Wednesday morning, 1130. Open the phone lines for your questions and or comments. I'm going to ask a question of you and perhaps you've got a theory on this or a thought or two. It came to me via email a couple of weeks ago. I've been wanting to share it on this segment and so no better time than the present. Uh, Forgive me if I'm mispronouncing the name T.U. as the author of this email. But here we go. Hi, Mike. My name is T.U. Van Winkle, and I have a potential topic for your show. I don't listen often. You know, T.U., we're going to have to work on that. 
as a little aside for me. But anyway, I don't know if this has been addressed, but I'm going to throw it out there because it was an observation that has been stuck in the back of my brain for a few days. The other day, I went into downtown Kitchener for training for the upcoming by-election. See, I told you this was a slightly older email. And where I parked, I had to walk past the injection site at Weber and College and numerous people in that area. I haven't been downtown in several years except for the odd festival, but I've never actually walked around downtown on a regular day. I know that we have homelessness, drug problems, mental health issues, etc., but I didn't realize the amount of teenagers and young adults that I saw on the street or at the injection site. It was an eye-opener to the problems that are out there. My question, and here I put it to you, loyal listener, is it the parents who should take part of the blame of this problem with these young adults? Please let me explain. I'm a 56-year-old woman whose parents weren't strict, but there were rules. When my friends were getting TV sets and radios for their room and wearing designer jeans, everything their moms and dads would provide, I never received anything like that unless I worked for it. I had rules around the house and chores to do, and when mom or dad, more mom, said no, no meant no. Most of my friends didn't have to pay for anything, didn't have to do chores, didn't have rules. When I became a mom, I followed the same rules as my parents. No meant no rules and such, but not overly strict. I was a parent, and my goal raising my daughter was to teach her to be a respectable adult who respected others, try to hold down a job and make positive marks at whatever she does or wherever she lives. I'm not saying my daughter is perfect. She does have some mental health issues and has been able to deal with them thanks to a great support system. But I noticed that while raising my daughter, the surrounding parents wanted to be their kids' friends and not a parent. Everyone won at whatever task was to be done. There wasn't a time to experience failure or consequences. The parents, teachers, and society provided these kids with, yes, self-worth, self-esteem, and other positive reinforcements, but didn't let them experience failure, disappointment, or the consequences of their actions. Parents weren't being parents. Teachers aren't allowed to discipline their students, let alone give them a hug without being reprimanded. I'm seeing more and more parents actually being scared to tell their kids no or denying them something for fear of tantrums, not being liked, etc. And they wonder why some children these days have no respect for people or property. Now, these kids are out on the streets with various problems, and my question is, are we partly to blame for this issue by the way we as parents in the last 40 years have raised our kids. I'm not putting all the blame on us. There are some bad apples out there, but we did create this because of our parents giving us everything that we wanted while growing up 50 years ago. It's like a domino effect. What are today's babies going to be like when they are young adults? It's really scary to think about. Yours sincerely, to you. To you, thank you very much for the email. I think, <laughs> I think what you're getting at is something that many of us feel, certainly once we reach a certain age. To you is 56, I'm 52. Raise your hand if you're over 45, maybe even over 40, and you look back and you say, oh, these kids today. These kids today, when I was a kid, it would have been like this. When I was a kid, it would have been like that. And I think that's just typical of us as we get older. And we see what we perceive to be a decline in parenting in general, 
And by the way, there's no rule book. I don't think there's a, a roadmap to being a parent either. I think everybody parents how they see fit. However, I, I, I think it's overstated this decline, this societal decline brought on by our inability to parent as strictly as we once did. I don't know. I, I do get the sense there could be more in the way of rulemaking and consequences for rule breaking. I certainly agree with that. I, I don't love the participation ribbons for all instead of somebody actually finishing first. I think we should strive for excellence and we should come to understand. I mean, these sporting events that are are, are competed for, you know, scores not even kept, so it doesn't matter who wins, who loses. Nah, you know what? You can learn a thing or two from a setback along the way. But But generally speaking, I think we do overstate this. It does remind me of a trip that we took to New York some years ago and and I saw so much need. Like you think there's need here, which of course there is, and we see it very visibly on street corners and in bushes, etc. But I, I was in New York and I was blown away too. People just sitting in in dazed out states on street corners. And I just all I could think of is at one point, somewhere that like this is somebody's child. They were born to a family somewhere. And what happened? What happened from that point, the moment they came out crying and getting hugged, to the moment that they found themselves sitting on a street corner in New York in a completely dazed out state? I I don't know, but something went wrong along the way. Let's go back to the phones. Russell, good morning. Hey, Mike. Hey, Russell. Hey. (laughs) I think parenting just get parents get overwhelmed, Mike. Mm, That's a good point. Yeah, I think, you know, back when we were kids wasn't cell phones all that are we wanted was nice clothes you know go to get the uh, my sister would want to go to get clothes at cut and Ginny or yeah yeah and now it's like you know i want a 70 dollars cell phone plan i want a game system i want a subscription to every streaming service there is it's kind of it just started to add up and i think parents can't you know they're just coping with keeping their own job and uh you know and keeping uh, their head above water that, uh, yeah, they just didn't uh, didn't see how the little things really did start to add up and uh, it made it really difficult. Russell, that's an excellent observation. I really appreciate it. Overwhelmed is a good word, and I, as a parent, admit to feeling that way sometimes for sure. Steve, good morning. So just kind of going back to what you were saying there kind of hit me pretty hard. Um, I'm, a, I'm a brother of somebody who's been a lifelong drug addict. And you had somebody on the other day who was going on about safe supply and going on about stuff, and it made my blood boil. Um, I know you kind of led into this with uh, the, the question about parents and stuff, and I can say that I had two of the greatest parents that you could have had, you ever could have wished for. Um, my father was gainfully employed and had a great job. Um, you know, money was never an issue, alcoholism. We didn't have those things, but somehow my sister still ended up going astray. And, um, you know, when I hear people talk about safe supply, stuff like that, it makes my blood boil because she's got so many other issues, mental issues, and drugs sure as hell didn't help. But, um, you know, just having the conversations about, you know, safe supply, my sister has, 
she says she insists she's been drug free for what going on probably eight or nine years now and she isn't she's just tied to the whole methadone train which is equally as frustrating it doesn't help her it hasn't helped her it'll never help her it just keeps her off of illicit drugs and keeps pharmaceutical companies rich politicians happy um it is such a multifaceted problem but it's not just a drug problem it is more a mental problem and yeah i'm sure in some cases parents will drive people to it but not in all cases it's um it's a 50 50 i think steve i appreciate the call and the sharing of a personal story like that and make no mistake i'm not i want to be clear i'm not blaming parents i'm just thinking that at some point like there are parents out there and and where did it go wrong? In this case, maybe there weren't the mental health supports that were required. Anyway, thanks for that. An update from the City News Centre is coming up. Our friends at Rogers TV are done for another day. So thanks to Robert and the team for producing the TV side of this show. We continue with the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. If it's one thing you probably know about me for sure, it's that I'm a hockey guy. I mean, one of my jobs here at the radio station is to provide commentary on the Kitchener Rangers. And every chance I get, which lately has been after every Leafs game, I follow up with a little AM on AM in the AM. You know, a little Austin Matthews audio on this AM radio station. So I just say this by way of introduction to our Next conversation, which is around the NBA's in-season tournament. As a hockey guy, I am at best a casual fan of basketball and the National Basketball Association. And so I, I was raising a quizzical eyebrow when I was watching some sports highlights on Sportsnet Central. And I'm like, what is the in-season tournament game? What? And then LeBron, he wins the inaugural in-season tournament. What's this? What's this all about? And and frankly, why is the NBA even doing it? So that brings us to our guest, who is Brad Millington, an associate professor of sport management at Brock University. Brad, good afternoon. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me on. Thanks very much for making the time. So I think you, you're the guy, kind of guy that can help me out here, right? Like, why did the NBA introduce an in-season tournament like this? Yeah, it's a good question, and quizzical eyebrow is a good way to put it. I did the same. I follow basketball fairly closely, and I did the same the first time I saw these in-season tournament courts. So the in-season tournament is something, this was the inaugural tournament that took place this year for the NBA. And basically the idea was to have pool play in the first instance. So you had six pools of teams, and they played each other, and that gave you six pool winners, much like you would do in the you know, the, the Men's or Women's World Cup soccer, for example. And then you'd also have two wildcard teams, and that gave you your eight quarterfinalists. And then from there, they played a single elimination knockout tournament to determine the winner. The championship game was just this past Saturday, so it was the Los Angeles Lakers against the Indiana Pacers, and the Lakers did indeed win. So why have this tournament? That's your question, and it's a good question. It seems to me that the idea of the tournament 
was to kind of breathe new life into regular season games for the NBA, and especially early season regular season games. So much like hockey, uh, the, the NHL, the NBA has an 82-game regular season. And there's been a conversation for a number of years now that the regular season might be too long. Uh, 82 games, it's, it's a lot of games, and then you have the playoffs after that. So by the time everything's said and done, you're playing from you know, maybe October all the way until June. So it's a long season, and that raises questions around, I guess, fan engagement in the first instance. It's a long time, especially early in the season. You're far away from the playoffs, so it's a long time to ask fans to stay engaged with what's going on. And then for the NBA, there's also been a question of player engagement in recent years. We've seen a situation where where players, and especially star players, have been sitting out games in the interest of what they call load management. So basically trying to reduce wear and tear on their bodies over the course of a long season. And so there's been this conversation, is the regular season too long? Are 82 games too many? Should we go down to, I don't know, 72, 62? There's been various proposals along these lines. Um, They've done the in-season tournament this year, and when I say the idea is to breathe new life into the early season, the early season games as part of the regular season, I think that's you know part of the aim here. So you know the idea is that you play these in-season tournament games, but interestingly, they also count towards the regular season. And so you have the kind of pool play that goes on, as I said before, that leads to the knockout round. And all of those games still count towards the regular season standings, except for the championship game, which doesn't. And so you're sort of changing the stakes, as it were. You still have those regular season stakes at play in these games that they're playing, but you also have a new set of stakes with the in-season tournament as well. That's the idea with the design. And so this can generate interest in early season, regular season games, where otherwise there might not have been as much interest or it might have, you, know, you might not have been, you know, been able to attract the attention of consumers uh, without this. So that, I think, is the idea to generate interest early on in the season. It's, it's interesting for sure. And you, you made a reference to the courts, like the, the physical surfaces that these teams were playing on. And you know, even as a casual basketball fan, Brad, I, I couldn't help but notice as I was channel surfing from time to time that the courts did look different. And I didn't really think much of it until the end of the tournament this weekend, and I kind of understood better what was going on. But, but what was with those like, rather outrageous color schemes that I was looking at? Yeah, it was different. I would say shockingly different yeah. in some cases. If you saw the Phoenix Suns court, so, I mean, basketball fans will be used to that kind of usual beige hardwood with some color mixed in, maybe in the key at center court. You see some advertisements, that sort of thing. But these courts were colorful from edge to edge and sometimes rather shocking in their design, right? It really kind of popped. So there were courts that had a lot of red. I actually didn't like the red courts. I found those especially hard to watch. There were some, the Phoenix Suns, for example, it was purple and teal from edge to edge. So it's, it's kind of this jarring experience if you're used to seeing the beige hardwood of NBA courts to come across these really colorful designs. I, I wrote a piece on this for a publication called The Conversation, and I called this uh, court design as push notification. 
Ah. We're used to getting push notifications on our phones, right? So this is, you know, you're sitting doing something and then all of a sudden a message pops up on your lock screen. It might be a news alert, a text or something like that, and it calls your attention away, right? And I think the courts, of course, it's not exactly the same, but it serves that type of purpose. If you're channel surfing, let's say, and you come across this court that looks very different, it might pull you in. It might grab your attention. And given that what I said before about how the tournament games count towards the regular season, but also this in-season tournament, I think the idea is that there was a need to distinguish which of these games actually do count towards the in-season tournament. And so the courts were a way of signifying that, of saying these are games that count towards the in-season tournament standings, whether it's the pool play or the knockout round. I really like that comparison to a push notification. And, and in that same piece, Brad, that you wrote for the conversation, you talked about the attention economy. What is that and, and where do sports kind of fit into it? Yeah, so the attention economy is just the, the basic idea that our attention has value. It has commercial value which is to say if you can capture attention and if you can hold that attention, so say an audience's attention, you can effectively treat attention as a product. You can sell attention to, say, advertisers, for example. So think about newspapers as an example here. You know, the model for newspapers, there's various ways of generating revenue. You can have subscription fees. People can go into a grocery store or gas station and buy a newspaper. But you also have advertisements oftentimes, alongside the news stories. And so, you know, I suppose the idea is to have good reporting, credible reporting, high-quality reporting, and then that captures the reader's attention. It keeps the reader's attention, but then they're also seeing advertisements at the same time. And this is another way of generating revenue from advertisers. That's kind of an idealized view. I can appreciate that this (laughs) is how things work, right? It's not necessarily just good information, that grabs our attention in the attention economy. It can also be sensationalized news headlines, for example. But, uh, you know, that's the idea, is to sort of grab attention and and sort of treat attention as a product. And so how does this in-season tournament then help the NBA stake its claim in this attention economy? I think it does. I think, I mean, I I suppose I should say first that I think sport has a really interesting place in general in the attention economy. In one sense, I think it's a place of privilege for sport. If you think about what sport involves, I mean, sport is exciting, right? It has kind of star power associated with it. It has feats of athleticism. Sport is unpredictable because the results aren't known in advance. It's popular because people play these games. They're familiar with the leagues and events and so on. Uh, But it's also live. It has a live appeal to it, partly for these other reasons, in large part because of the unpredictability that I mentioned before. And so because it's live, you want to watch it in the moment. And maybe then you see the commercials at the same time, right? I don't know if you've ever had this experience of trying to watch a game the next day. You know, in the past, if you had taped the game on VHS cassette, I know people don't do that anymore, or if you watch <laughs> it on some platform the next day, but you try to avoid having the results spoiled for you ahead of time. 
in the interim. That's actually a, a terrible scenario, right? If you go through that day trying to avoid knowing the results of a game, you spend your whole day worrying that you might accidentally have the results, but that one of your colleagues might come into the office and say, hey, did you see that great game-winning goal from Christine Sinclair last night or something along those lines? And so the live component of sport is really important. We don't have that same dynamic with, you know, like Game of Thrones or Succession or whatever your favorite TV show is. There can certainly be spoiler elements there, but it's not quite the same as sport. So this gives sport a real place of privilege in the attention economy. At the same time, our, our kind of communication landscape, our entertainment landscape has, has become very crowded in recent years. You know, if this was 20 or 30 years ago, a sports broadcast might be competing against something like, you know, an episode of Friends that's on at the same time or something like that. Uh, nowadays, we have this dynamic where a sports broadcast is competing against, you know, maybe the entire Friends series that someone can stream online, or maybe it's the entire Netflix catalog that someone could access. They're competing against social media as well, which is constantly refreshing. And so there's this kind of fierce competition for our attention. And I think that's a challenge for, for sports leagues and events or, event organizers and so on. And so I think this helps explain why it is we're seeing le leagues kind of experimenting in recent years, tr trying out new things, you know, changing, evolving, however you want to put it. I don't know if they'd put it in precisely these terms around the attention economy, but I think this is the kind of like landscape they're working in and offering up these new initiatives like the in-season tournament. So I, I recognize that these are very early returns. We're mere days removed from the crowning of the first inaugur the inaugural in-season tournament champion. But do you think it's got staying power, Brad? Is this something we're going to see continue or is it a novelty for the NBA? I think this first tournament was a success. And so for that reason, it will have staying power. I think there's certainly a risk when you have an initiative of this kind. I mean, there's so many requests for our attention nowadays that you might have consumers say, you know, is this just another way of grabbing my attention, of dressing up this product in another way? Is it kind of a gimmick to get my attention? That's the risk that might come with an initiative like this, and it might actually be off-putting or deemed off-putting by some at least as a result. There's that risk, but I think what's happened with this first in-season tournament is that players took it seriously. There was good competition. Players and teams seemed to be invested in it. There were some, you know, really good games that were played, and you know, I think it's noteworthy that there was an iconic team, the Los Angeles Lakers, and really the kind of star of stars in the NBA, LeBron James, that won this year and, and hoisted the trophy. Um, I think that's significant. I know that wasn't planned, but I think it's significant because what a new initiative like this lacks is the kind of history that some other events already have. And you have to build history over time. But I think having a strong tournament, a successful tournament, and having you know LeBron James and the Lakers as, as champions, um, it gives some weight to the tournament. So I think for, for those reasons, I expect the tournament to have staying power over time. 
It is uh, really interesting, especially, you know, sports and the place and the attention economy and that place of privilege it may it may have. Uh, really interesting stuff. Brad, thanks very much for joining the show today. Thanks so much, Mike, for having me on. Enjoy the rest of your day. Bye-bye. Okay, you too. Brad Millington is an associate professor of sport management at Brock University. I Super interesting stuff. And, it, it, you know, it occurs to me. We're talking about this attention economy and sports place within it. I was just talking to a buddy uh, the other day about the NHL rights, which you probably know are owned by the parent company of this radio station. And there is some speculation that uh, upon the end of this existing deal for those rights, uh, the parent company of this radio station, Rogers, will likely move on. I don't know that any more than anyone else, but that's some of the speculation. And I always thought, I always thought that it was a a stroke of genius. Not that I was the one signing the checks because it was a multi-billion dollar deal, but I thought it was a a brilliant idea on the part of the company to acquire those rights because it gives them, it it gives Rogers that instantaneous content. And, And the content is original without the need for scripting and production, all that other stuff. Well, production, there's there. But, you know, all of those behind-the-scenes things, nobody has to write a script, nobody has to, you know, get involved in the creative process. The game itself is the content. And then you heard Brad talk about that unpredictable nature of it, which captures our attention, even in this increasingly fragmented attention economy. The NBA and, and leagues in general are are going to have to figure this out because there is so much more competition for our eyeballs and for our ears. And this is a direction that the NBA is moving in. I think it works, too, because of the global appeal of the NBA. I I think maybe right behind soccer, maybe auto racing, but I, I think perhaps just behind soccer, NBA has got it over the other leagues, doesn't it, when it comes to international appeal? Hockey certainly doesn't have it, and they they did their little gimmick over to Sweden this year. Anyway, did you did you take it in? Like, did it did it do anything for you? Did it catch your attention? Did it capture your attention? And and I wonder also connected to that, like what it is that does capture your attention about sports today. Anyway, is it just having a favorite team? One of the things that I really like, I've always liked about junior hockey. And I find even the pro game is going this way now, is the games are are quicker. You've got two and a half hours or so, and the game is done. That's a digestible amount of time for me, which is kind of terrible to say. Something I enjoy, I'm kind of happy that it's over in two and a half hours. But I look back on some of those, you know, quote-unquote classic baseball games between the Yankees and Red Sox that went on forever. National Football League games, which I love, but four hours. Give me a break here, guys. Let's go. Let's get moving. I think the pitch clock introduction in baseball was terrific. Let's keep the game moving along. What is it that captures your attention or keeps your attention in sports? Is it something like an in-season tournament? Your thoughts always welcome on the show. It's the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. I think this helps explain why it is we're seeing leagues kind of experimenting in recent years, trying out new things, changing, evolving, however you want to put it. I don't know if they'd put it in precisely these terms around the attention economy, but I think this is the kind of like landscape they're working in and offering up these new initiatives like the in-season tournament. 
Brad Millington is an associate professor of sport management at Brock University. Joins us for a compelling conversation about the NBA's in-season tournament and how the whole thing is really a play for viewer attention. Eyeballs and earbuds make for revenue for the league. That's kind of, you know, at its simplest, the way this all works. Let's go to the phones. Greg, good afternoon. Hi, Mike. Hey, Greg. Uh, a bit of a sort of transition for me as um, watching sports. As a kid, it was more just simply cheering because, like, hey, okay, the Leafs are on TV and, you know, whoever, and you just sort of that's really all you had. And then sort of the next stage was, hey, this is a good social thing. Leafs in the playoffs, hey, guys, let's get together and watch it. Like, people get together and watch movie nights or whatever. Well, sports can maybe bring people together, a social reason. And then nowadays, I think I said this a few weeks ago for the same, uh, some other topic on the same thing, but uh, sports pools, if you've got something riding on it. Oh, good point. That's going to make you tune in even more. So that's what's, like, I go in NFL football pools and some hockey pools. Um, So having something riding on it just makes you want to follow it more, not necessarily sit down and watch every three-hour game but at least follow the results, see how they're doing, follow injuries and stuff like that. And uh, so, like I say, it's, it can be a social thing with a group or have something riding on it. Those are two things currently on my plate that would make me tune in. Greg, that's really interesting, and thanks for sharing that. I hadn't even really thought of the social aspect. I used to enjoy the occasional bevy at the bar with friends watching the game even better than getting together at home, although at home wasn't bad. And, you know, when I'm thinking of these other reasons for tuning in, Greg gets me thinking, and this is the geek in me, who does what I do for a living, but I am really taken in by the production value and how the game is presented to me. And and frankly, right now, again, I don't watch a whole lot of basketball. I watch zero soccer, but I don't think anybody can touch the National Football League when it comes to the presentation of the product. I think they do an exceptional job at showing you the game and all kinds of aspects of it. Anyway... Interesting stuff. Glad that Brad could join us from Brock University and that you could participate in the conversation as well. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back with a conversation sticking with sports, but again, kind of secondary to the games themselves. We all know that there is a lot of money for the best in their respective sports, right? But I think we also know that oftentimes that money can be wasted by the players who earn it. So how can we help them protect that wealth. A new book aims to do just that, and we'll talk about it coming up on the Mike Farwell Show. This is City News 570. We all know that there is a great deal of money available in professional sports. If you can make it to the top of your athletic profession, you have opportunity to make a great deal of money over the course of a career. But what we also know, and I don't think we talk about enough, is the perils of mismanaging that money along the way. And then at the end, ending up in some level of financial distress or, moreover, the mental and physical toll that life as a pro takes on you leaves you rather helpless when you're done playing the game. 
I don't think I'm the only one to have ever noticed that. And certainly uh, our next guests here on the program have taken notice. They have co-authored a book called Skateguard, Advice for Surviving and Thriving in Professional Hockey. And they join us on the show. Mike Jazko is one of those co-authors. Mike, good afternoon. Great to be here. Great to have you here. And Rob Martini is with us as well. Rob, good afternoon to you. Good afternoon. Thanks for having us on. Thanks very much for making the time to the both of you. And, and Mike, I'll start with you very simply. Why did you decide to write this book? Well, um, so I come at it from two professional designations and backgrounds. Originally, I was a healthcare provider. I retired as a pharmacist, saw the, uh, the trials and tribulations associated with, with mental health and particularly during covid I'm also uh, an investment advisor, uh, financial advisor with our, our firm, uh, KJ Harrison and Partners, based in Toronto. And over the years, um, I had a number of, of young uh, men referred to me by their parents um, who were professional athletes. And I began to realize that there's an entire world here. And um, more specifically, um, did a lot of work with uh, the Calgary Flames uh, about 10 years ago and and uh, through the work with the alumni there, uh, it became very prevalent to me after Steve Mondador took his life that there's an intersection between money and the life of a professional athlete, and in some cases, the ravages associated with mental health. Rob, you come at this as a player who played at the elite level. You've been a coach at the international level. What have you seen in the game that makes you understand how important an initiative like this is. Yeah, I think one of the things that that people really don't, you know, give a lot of thought to is, you know, certainly the average the average person starts out their career and, you know, your salary is generally pretty modest. And so, you know, you sort of learn how to, you know, for lack of a better term, do life along the way. Um Hockey, if you if you go play in the NHL, the average age of a forward in the NHL right now is about 23 years old. And so you step into a situation where you are handed sums of money that the average person just has no has no idea how to how to manage that, how to how to deal with that and and the, the pressures and responsibilities that come with that. And so uh, I've just seen, you know, I was fortunate enough along the way to, to play with and play against and, and befriend a number of people who, you know, were, were lucky enough, were skilled enough to go on to, to you know, have some of these, uh, I'll call them good problems to have. Um, and, you know, some of them handled it very, very well and, and others, you know, really, really struggled with it. Um, and it was something that, you know, I love hockey. I love the game. I love the people around the game. Um, and, and when it became clear to me that, you know, my playing career was not going to, to take me any further, um, I was really keen on, you know, just creating some, some better outcomes for, for a lot of these guys who, um, you know, aren't, you know, aren't fortunate enough to have, you know, some of the, the guidance that they, they might need along the way. And so, you know, hopefully, you know, what Mike and I are doing with SkateGuard can, can kind of fill that void a little bit. You know, and I'm thinking, Rob, as you talk about that, I mean, just the dedication required to continue as a professional athlete and to and to maybe 
attain a status where you have those good problems to have, so to speak. So much of your focus is on that, that these other things might not even be on your radar. Completely. I mean, people... um, People don't, you know, necessarily appreciate the the time commitment, and you know, certainly you see, you know, when you turn Hockey Night in Canada on, you know, these guys are are working incredibly hard and, and demonstrating an incredible level of skill. Um, but the the demands, and you you touched on it, and Mike touched on it a little bit earlier, the demands physically and mentally on you are are immense, and so. Um, yeah, when, when it comes to, all right, am I going to study video or am I going to go to the gym, you know, or am I going to, you know, figure out what my tax planning looks like next year? Um, it's usually the former that wins out rather than the latter. And so, yeah, it's, it's certainly something that, um, you know, guys, guys need to pay attention to and, and girls are going to need to pay attention to with the new PWHL coming in. So That's a great point. Mike, to, to which audience are you directing this book? Who do you think needs it most? Who would you like most to read it and take it in? I think we're earmarking the, uh, the players that are, you know, working their way up through the minor hockey system and their parents. Um, and as a result of that, you know, there's a few me- few messages in there. The first one is the odds of you making it in uh, the show and earning a living for any appreciable amount of time is extremely low. So along the way, um, get something out of hockey, uh, out of your hockey experience. Um, maybe if you are so academically inclined, uh, like Rob was, he went the, the, the route through the NCAA, through the U.S. Hockey League. Um, and, and then, um, others just, just understand that, um, we're all human beings. Everyone's, everyone's kid's going to make it. A lot of parents tend to live their, their life vicariously through their kid's career. That's why we hear the, you know, the stories that we do, uh, about, uh, inappropriate behavior. Um, and, and, and to focus, uh, not just on the financial health, not on how great you're going to plan on being, but focus on your own mental health. And those are the things that we were very lied to. The book is intended to be an easy read, very instructive. Uh, it's it's just things that parents and and young uh, budding athletes um, should avail themselves of uh, along the way. Along with the guidance that the two of you can provide, Mike, you also get some uh, pretty high level support here with a foreword by the Marner family, which I think speaks to. An understanding that not everybody is going to be as as lucky as Mitch, and maybe even in Mitch's case, no matter how many millions, you still have to manage them along the way. Yeah, I mean, I, I've known Mitch since um, you know he he, he uh, moved uh, into the Lennon Knights organization, and I've gotten to know the family, and these are good people, these are solid people, and, and they're high profile people, and the Toronto media, by way of example, you know, tends to be very judgmental. But, you know, our, our interests align. Mitch is very much interested in, in supporting mental health and helping young people, particularly as related to, you know, the ravages associated with, with COVID. So it just made sense. And so when I sat down with the family, I said, okay, I am, a, by definition, a financial advisor, which may be the red flag for most people to not want to have their, their, their child and their family talk to us because, you know, Money brings out a lot of uh, a lot of individuals who may not have the best interests of the family and, and the young player at heart, and uh, 
And so we decided to donate all the proceeds uh, from this book uh, to the Monitor Foundation because our interests align in terms of helping uh, young kids in the community who are challenged with some mental health issues. Rob, I suspect that as you worked your way up through the ranks of hockey, you didn't ever really intend on one day writing a book. What's the experience been like for you? <laughs> um, so, you know, certainly when when you're riding the bus, you know, it's it's a lot of, you know, guys watching movies, guys listening to music. Um, and, and so, yeah, we I don't know that writing a book was was ever on the radar. Um, and, you know, that's that's why we we kept it. Um, it's very approachable. It's very digestible. Um, and, and we're supporting it with, with a lot of other content as well. Um, you know, we've sort of taken nuggets from the book and, you know, developed those into social media posts. And, and I write a blog over at, at our SkateGuard website. And so we're really trying to, to support the book as well and just, you know, be able to meet players where they're at. Um, as we, we sort of discussed earlier, we know, we know everybody has a busy schedule. And so, um, just giving, giving players as many different options in terms of, you know, how they digest content and how they interact with us as, as they can. Um, and, and hockey players, you know, particularly the generation coming up now, um, they always, they always want to know the why. And, and so that is more conducive to, you know, the types of conversations that we're, we're looking to have with people. You know, we want, um, you know, we want the player to understand, you know, why we feel that this is a good, you know, approach. And, and so being able to, you know, provide that, that background and, you know, with some, some concrete examples, um, we find really resonates with, with players. Yeah, it, it makes so much sense. And and I've been on those buses where movies and whatever's on your phone is the most important thing for sure. So I understand completely Certainly. Yeah, where you're coming from. Uh, Mike, where can we get our hands on this book? So currently uh, the book is available um, at uh, Wordsworth Bookstore on 96 King Street South in Uptown Waterloo. Uh, Dave has been a tremendous supporter so you can get it there. He's got lots of supplies. Those who may pick this up um, outside the region, unable to come down to uh, Waterloo, uh, it's available uh, on uh, on Amazon as well. And um, and it makes a great stocking stuffer. But most importantly, there are hooks in there and contacts with Rob and I with programming that we are able to deliver in a real time basis online. With, with parents involved, that's very key uh, as well. Visit our website, and, um, and it's www.skateguardhockey.com, and, and follow us on, on Instagram as well. I think uh, the work is excellent, and, and the reasons behind it uh, equally excellent. Gentlemen, thanks very much for what you've done and, and for making time for the show today. I really do appreciate it. Likewise. Have a great yeah, holiday thanks. season. You too, Mike. Thank you so much for having us on. Thanks, Rob. Stay well. Keep up the good work, guys. Cheers. Cheers. Bye-bye. Rob Martini and Mike Jazko, they are the co-authors of SkateGuard, Advice for Surviving and Thriving in Professional Hockey. SkateGuardHockey.com is the website you can visit. Find the book at pretty much the only place I get my books, Wordsworth in Uptown Waterloo. But listen, I've been around junior hockey long enough to understand completely what it is these guys are talking about. I've seen too many of those close calls just myself. And the older I get, the more I wish you could just convey to somebody 
when they're 18 and 19 that, you know, in 30 years, what you're really going to value is the education you can get. Because not everybody, and there's such a small number that make it to the NHL and make millions and millions and millions of dollars, right? So get the education now and then go and play here or go and play there. But I I don't know if I could have convinced my 18-year-old self of that, so I'm not surprised that, you know, I can't necessarily convince every 18-year-old who's still dreaming of the next step in their hockey career. But I like what Mike and Rob are doing because they truly are addressing an issue that needs some addressing. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, ah, you know what? Parting shots time is what? If you got one, take it. That's coming up. This is the Mike Farwell Show on City News 570. Ten minutes to go in the show for this Wednesday afternoon. At one o'clock, we'll get you an update from the City News Center, and then Rob Snow is all set to go with Now You Know to take you through part of your afternoon. But we always leave time at the end of this show, so for the final ten minutes, it's what we call parting shots. So if you've got one, take it. I'll just keep it that simple. 519-570-2545, star 570 one 800 George, good afternoon. Yeah, my, my parting shot today is going to be that I believe, seriously, that two or three of those uh, Rangers could sure use that skate guard board. I think there's at least two or three who go on to great things, and uh, somebody needs to get them those books for Christmas. There you go. That's why I wanted to have the conversation at this time of year, right? It's a perfect time to stuff it in somebody's stocking, isn't it? Exactly. I wish some of the guys do good because I really think they're going to make it. Thanks, George. Appreciate that. You know, here's what else I appreciate. George, no disrespect to any of our other callers, regular or otherwise, but doesn't George just nail it, right? He gets to the point, he makes his point well, and and then he's off to the rest of his day. But to George's point, uh, I I think it just is something that is underappreciated, isn't it? Like, we think about these athletes striving to make it to the top of their game in the National Hockey League, and good on them. But there are two sides to it. One is, what if they don't make it? Are they taking the necessary steps earlier on, like at this point of their career, if they're with the Kitchener Rangers, to get the education that will stand them in good stead later in life? Or if they do make it, What about all those, quote-unquote, good problems to have? Are they ready? And I thought Rob Martini, our guest a moment ago, put it so well. You're concerned with your next workout and watching some video to improve your game. Who's thinking about the tax implications of your contract the next year or something like that? These are really important things for athletes to consider. We'd all love to have the problems, we think. But remember, they are problems. So, George, well said. And maybe it will end up in a stocking or two. The book Skate Guard uh, this Christmas. Grant, over to you for a parting shot. Yeah, I always like the, uh, even though they repeated nonstop during the Ranger game, is that fellow, I don't know, where they, he t- teaches you how to do a saucer pass. Oh, yeah, the skills. That's, uh, I forget his name, but he's from the Ontario Hockey Association. Yeah. I would think if I was a player, 
I would have to have a TV screen on the ice with me to learn that uh, those techniques because it's it looks really easy when our players are doing it, but I think it would take me a whole year to figure out. Oh, okay. Well, I guess I got to pass it here. I got. I got to back up. How do I back up? You know what, Grant? You're absolutely right. And and two things come to mind. One of my favorite instructors from Conestoga College, back when I was studying radio and television broadcasting, was fond of saying, practice makes improvement. So, yeah, you could watch those videos, or you could just practice like the players do and continually improve. Practice does not make perfect, but it makes improvement. And then I'm thinking of the 10,000 hours theory, as put forward by good old Woolwich Township, Elmira native. Uh, oh my gosh, Malcolm Gladwell. I blanked on his name for a second there. But if you do something for 10,000 hours, you can become expert at it. So there you go. Maybe the players have practiced their saucer passes for 10,000 hours now. Mark, parting shots to you. Afternoon, Mike. What about those players in the NHL, Mike, that have played for 15 or 20 years and never got themselves a ring? And then you get some young guys that luck out on a team, and they've got a ring after two or three years. Yeah, no kidding. Right? Like Sittler. How about Sittler? How Never about Sittler? Lanny got lucky with uh, Calgary. He got himself a ring. Yes, he did. Another player, uh, Jeff Skinner, he's been with Buffalo forever. I don't think he's going to get a ring. Listen, as as you well know, Mark, the number of players that do not get a ring far surpasses the number of players who do. Absolutely. But I'm just saying, Mike, um, some guys luck out. Yeah, for sure. It's the way it goes, man. And, yeah. hey, Mike. Yeah, buddy. Go Leafs, go. Baby. That a boy. I like to hear that, buddy. Go Leafs, go. How about our Austin Matthews, anyway? Phil, good afternoon. Good morning, Mr. Mike. Good afternoon, Mr. Phil. Oh, yeah, yeah, it is. I guess you're in a different time zone. I am in a different time zone. It's not as, it's the different time zone in, in when you go east of Stratford, my friend. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. Now, I've listened to you for a couple of years now. Thank you for that. And I think you're dyslexic. Who, what now? Because you always say you only have 38 listeners, when in fact, my tally, you have 83. <laughs> I like your tally better than mine. I've also <laughs> been led to believe just this week, Phil that we have now reached 40. So we're climbing. Ooh. Yeah. Now, well, I don't want to know your reverse of that. <laughs> Thank you very much. No, that's no. not acceptable. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Phil. Good night. Good night. Enjoy the rest of your day in the beautiful festival city of Stratford, and thanks for uh, listening in from there. Quick housekeeping note, and and this pains me, believe me, especially because... I lost two days last week unexpectedly when I I just I, I woke up and I'm like, I can't do it. Like, I can't do it. And so I had to make a call to the bullpen. Fortunately, the call was answered, but I missed a couple of days last week. I'm fine. Everything's fine, except for the fact that I have to be in a meeting tomorrow. And you know how much I love meetings. I mean, whoa. If there's one thing in this life that I really like a a very little bit, it's meetings. But it's an important meeting with programmers of this radio station. So I am being seconded, so to speak. And I will not, I mean, I'll be here tomorrow. I just won't be on the air. So Larry Fedorik is going to fill in tomorrow. 
please, no need to check in on me, no need to send well wishes. I'm fine. I expect to be fine tomorrow, other than I'll be sitting in a meeting while Larry is hosting my show. So be kind to the supply teacher, please, and have a good time on the show, and I'll come back on Friday, and we'll we'll have some fun again. But the show will be here, Larry will be in the on-air chair, and I'll be in a meeting somewhere else in the building. we got to get out of here, that update from the City News Centre, and then Now You Know with Rob Snow is just around the corner. Devin Robertson is our guy on the other side of the glass. My name is Mike Farwell. Bye for now.